0: better way to do this
1: Let me show you a better way You
0: don't have to be another face in the crowd Well, hi folks, and welcome to episode 3185 of the Survival Podcast. As far as Bitcoin breakout, we're up to episode 23 this week. And I've got a great one for you as we continue a series that I call Great Minds of Bitcoin. Today we are joined by Parker Lewis. Why Parker Lewis? Because he can't lose. Many of you won't get that joke because even though I'm not a boomer, as I'm accused of being sometimes, I am Gen X. I am old. Gen X is very old at this point. Anyway, Parker Lewis is an awesome dude. I first heard him on Peter McCormack's show, What Bitcoin Did, and uh I eventually uh, was able to interview a gentleman named Jeff Van Andrew, or Jeff Van Drew, I'm sorry, uh, from Unchained Capital. And when I did that interview, he told me that Parker also worked for Unchained. And I was like, man, I would love to get him on the air. And we booked him. And then there was a scheduling snafu. And that was months ago. And it didn't happen. And I was pretty depressed about it. But uh, Parker's folks reached back out. And we uh, got everything set up. And we're going to have him on with you guys today. Parker is a veteran of the financial services and asset management uh, industries. Uh, He really understands that side of the world. He came to Bitcoin from that side of the world, like many of the best minds of Bitcoin have. It, It inevitably ends up, people that best understand our current system of monetary creation and economics tend to best understand Bitcoin when they go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, and they inevitably become the most hardly orange-pilled people on the planet. It's, it's a weird demographic, because the people in that space, if they refuse to really go look at Bitcoin for real, they, they, they just see it as a scam. But the same people from the same demographic, when they go down the hole, they become... The most ardent proponents. Michael Saylor would be another example of that. Somebody that really understands mathematics and economics and business and money. Um, That's why I think the first step, and that's why when I did my fundamental series of Bitcoin Breakout, the first episode ever of the Bitcoin Breakout uh, segments was understanding money. It It really had almost nothing to do with Bitcoin. And if you come from that side of things, a lot of things that don't seem to make sense about Bitcoin make perfect sense about Bitcoin. In fact, Parker's on today to tell you why he believes Bitcoin will end up being the world reserve currency. Now, a lot of you are like, CBDCs, CBDCs, and they, you know what, they're going to do that. There's a such thing as a reserve currency not actually being the currency that the individual nations use. We'll talk about that and more today. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of day number one today is the Ridge Wallet. Now, for you Bitcoin folks, the Ridge Wallet is not a Bitcoin wallet. It's a wallet wallet. It's actually a minimalist wallet. But much like you're concerned about security of any Bitcoin wallet that you use, you should be concerned about the security of the regular everyday carry around in your pocket wallet that you use. And there's a reason. If you, if you open your wallet right now and you start looking at the cards, you'll see all these little RFID tags that are in there. That's where you tap to pay and stuff like that. That's a lot of important information. And there's equipment you can buy for a few bucks on eBay where you can actually steal information off people's cards. I know that's hard to believe, but it's true. But if if those cards and any other important data you have was encased in little titanium sleeves then they would be protected from such things it also lets you carry as a minimalist and ridge wallet has become an incredible edc company they're also a member of my support brigade offering you 10% off anything that you order if you haven't been to ridge.com and checked out some of the cool stuff ridge wallet has lately you should do it and yeah we're coming up on christmas time folks just saying might be a good place to get 10% back and uh... On your discount, on your membership, plus get some really cool stuff from ruichballot.com. And you know what? They accept Visa, MasterCard, etc. So you could pay with your Fold card and stack sats at the same time. How cool is that? Next up today on that, JM Bullion. Now, this is a Bitcoin show. And you're like, dude is about to talk about silver and gold. Is he turned into Peter Schiff? No, I am not an all-in-on-anything guy. I believe in diversification and wealth insurance. I I definitely hold more wealth in Bitcoin than I do silver or gold, but I also hold wealth in silver and gold. I think silver and gold have had their time in the sun as money, but there is an inelastic demand on silver for industry, and wealth will remain a reserve asset for a long time to come. And so when I'm buying silver and gold, all I care about... Is getting good to the best pricing I can get. Jam Bullion checks that box. If I can get a discount, I want that. Members get a discount on silver and gold from Jam Bullion. Uh, they also accept Bitcoin, by the way. I'm just saying. Uh, the other thing I want to know, though, is if there is any problems that they'll be taking care of. And with Jam Bullion, I have a direct line into the president if necessary. They love this audience. They've been a sponsor for almost a decade now. There's no reason to buy your silver and gold anywhere else. And by the way. Not only do you guys get discounts, you get free shipping on all your orders as well. Check them out today at jmbullion.com. With that, let's dive on into it. Welcome our special guest to the Survival Podcast, Parker Lewis from Unchained Capital. Hey, Parker, man, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be here, Jack. Thanks for having me on.
0: I'm glad to have you. We had a snafu the last time we tried to set this up quite a while ago, and I was really happy to get another shot at having you on. Uh, You're an awesome voice in the world of Bitcoin. Uh, but I want, I was wondering if maybe you could start out with just tell people a little bit about your personal background, because you came out of more of the conventional finance asset management side of things, right?
1: Yeah, correct. I, I, I like to think about it as that I was perfectly predisposed to not understand Bitcoin. Um, had a classical economics degree, you know, schooled in the, the Keynesian, um, kind of backwards way of thinking, went and worked for a Wall Street and investment bank, um, worked in restructuring, worked in asset management, and in 2016, that's when I went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Uh, had the great privilege of meeting Safiya Amuse, who wrote a book called The Bitcoin Standard a few years later, um, and helped me start to understand kind of some fundamental questions about what money is, what makes something a better or worse form of money, and I went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and came out the other side and Austrian um, or, or, or kind of more aligned with the Austrian way of thinking about the world and about economics and um, all that follows from there.
0: Yeah, I was saying for my intro on the audio side, I actually think people that understand money really kind of bifurcating the two camps with Bitcoin. If they'll, if they'll go down that rabbit hole, they perfectly understand Bitcoin once they do, but it seems like it's very hard for them to, um, and it, it may be because they've had, Benefit from the existing system; it's hard to see its flaws. But was safety, who you mentioned, you know, his second book, I guess it's the second, was was the fiat standard, and he it seemed like he kind of realized, like you had to explain fiat for many people to really get Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, I think it, I think it can go um, either way, uh, where people go down the the what is money rabbit hole and really build up from first principles, and for others, uh, it's it's helping to see not just the flaws, but the really backwards incentives of the fiat system. Um, and people can get at it from either angle and having resources like safe. And, and now his book um, are super helpful to, to help see the world in a different way in a way that, that honestly makes a lot more sense.
0: You mentioned the book you read, but what really pulled you out of that space and made you decide like this, this is what not only just were you into Bitcoin or you, you thought maybe there was potential, but it was something you really wanted to be involved
1: with. So, kind of, I think timelines are important. Um, when I went down, really, before I went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, Safe had taken me down the the money rabbit hole, um, and that was around the same time that Safe was starting to become very interested in Bitcoin and started writing. But, but at that same time, I was I was working for a hedge fund in Dallas, Texas, and I was going down a, a separate rabbit hole, which was trying to understand what would happen when the federal reserve started to unwind post financial crisis, quantitative easing, the the $3.6 trillion that the fed digitally created between 2009 and 2014. And I was, I was on wall street at that time of the financial crisis, but I was very recent out of school and had no context of what was happening around me. Um, And in that 2016 timeframe, while I was also starting to go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, I was independently going down this rabbit hole of what actually happened in the financial crisis. Why did it happen? Uh, And that was to help answer questions of when they started to unwind those emergency measures, what I thought would happen. And so independent from Bitcoin, I came to this conclusion that the Fed and central banks all over the world are going to have to print money, digitally created, however you want to describe it, um, for the rest of time until that system breaks um, completely or with finality. And I, again, and I think it was very important that I formed these opinions independent of Bitcoin that that legacy system was broken. Um, and there, there's a saying, I think, in in the finance world where people will say, um, it was crazy. Uh, it's not going to end well, but but the Fed had to do it. And there's no logical connection between it, that was crazy and it's not going to end well. And but they had to do it yeah, because yeah. because inaction is always inaction. And so because I was anchored to that point of that this is a problem. Like it's a problem for all of us. It's a problem for us on an individual level, community level, family level, business level. Society level, um, that there was going to be another path forward. That that idea that money doesn't grow on trees and that there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Those are very true statements, and society had been conditioned that maybe those 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 axioms were no longer true, but but they are true. And that kind of coinciding with that journey of, of research and coming to those conclusions, I also started to understand principally. What makes something a better or worse form of money? What money is at a fundamental level? And that combination of factors allowed me to to see Bitcoin, to understand it. And the more I went down the technical underpinnings of Bitcoin as well as pairing that with understanding the monetary aspects of it and knowing that our current system was living on borrowed time, um, I I started to to really be able to, in a very rational and logical way, um, kind of – Get myself consistently back to the point of why Bitcoin probabilistically was going to be adopted as um, as the world's new form of money, and looking at it as a, a, a massive problem, um, but also being able to work on you know small parts of being being the solution um, was attractive to me. That that kind of combination, being like, hey, like we have to build an arc because this is coming one way or the other. And what what is going to be the most likely lifeboat? Um, and that and that when I started to develop conviction around the, the two sides of that story, and it's, it's kind of apropos to the title of this podcast, I started to see in a very logical way, not in a a hope and a prayer way, that Bitcoin yeah. was going to be the world reserve currency, and uh, it made a lot of sense to work on that rather than than working at a hedge fund. Can you
0: elaborate a little bit on? the modern money system being broken. Because I think if you walked up to, you know, did man on the street kind of interview thing where you got to talk to people and ask them, is the monetary system broken? They would say, yes. I don't think they would actually be talking about the monetary system though. They would, they would mean, well, I'm not paid enough or my house costs too much, which are symptoms of the problem. But I don't think most people even understand how money is created, what velocity of money is, what the M3 is like. The, the, Hethwan effect. They don't understand any of these things when they say this. They just know that they're unhappy and they know that they don't have as much money as they would like to have.
1: I think that that is one of the, I, I think that is absolutely right. And I think it's one of the most complex problems of explaining Bitcoin to people because um, many viewers of your podcast, many people that are, are friends of mine are actively conscious of the fact that between 2009 and 2014 that the federal reserve created 3.6 trillion new dollars. Uh, and then probably more people are conscious of the fact that between 2020 and 2022, the federal reserve created another $5 trillion in base money. Most people have no idea what base money means. Most people have no idea what M1 is, what M2 is, what M3 is. Um, and, but, but the reality is 99% of people have no idea that the fed created all that money or what the consequences are. Even those people who understand that they created this amount of money m- might not be able to explain, well, why, if the federal reserve over the last 13 years increased the money supply by 10 X, why hasn't everything fallen apart? Um, and it is because very few people one understand that that's happening to uh, even fewer people would understand the consequence, but all of it comes out in the things that cost money around you, the things that you need to sustain yourself, the, the, the gas at the gasoline station, the, the food at the grocery store, very basic necessities, energy, your power costs, your power bills. They feel that. And and one of the problems with this is that they feel all the symptoms and they're looking around for explanations, but because they aren't familiar with the monetary system or they have, you know, a lot of other things to deal with in their daily lives they don't have that oftentimes that opportunity to sit down and spend 100 hours or 500 hours like really getting to the bottom of it um and and that is a reality that is a reality of what we're 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 up against but at the same time the way that i explain it to those those people is that they know that their government's printing money right they've heard they they have that general idea um, now, while they don 't necessarily know how it ties in the way that I try to simplify it for people is um, imagine each individual day that that people work eight hours in a day, forty hours in a week, give or take hours for individual people. Um, what are the consequences of your money being guaranteed to purchase less value that you put in um, because that because then when I try to visualize it for people i Say now, like imagine a, a simple chart with an X and Y axis and imagine every day from that point in time when you delivered value to somebody else that that your value delivered degrades into the future. Now, imagine the consequences of that society wide that when people uh, what, what it functionally represents is that you don't actually have an incentive to create value. Uh, to other people around you because it's guaranteed to purchase less in the future. And what do people start to do in that world? They start to game systems. So they start to make money rather than deliver value. And those are two very different things. Um, And their time preference increases because they're literally running on a hamster wheel and they're, they're on a finite clock. They know from that point in time, because the, because the price signals and the price signals are the food at the grocery store continues to get more expensive. My dollars lose value. I've been conditioned that. I know that that happens. Now, how do I respond to those very broken economic incentives? Because when I talk about the system being broken, it is that if you are delivering value to other human beings, to people around you producing real goods and services, um, that that value should be retained into the future uh, not just in an optimal world, but in a world in which you could even have some semblance of economics incentives being aligned. If all value I delivered to you was, was guaranteed to purchase me less in the future, what is the actual underlying incentive to deliver value? If you flip that script, if you take the fly out of the ointment, which is I produce value for you, and that's going to retain its value, if not purchase more value into the future. I'm more incentivized to do that uh, because the Fed prints money. They engineer your world to, as you deliver value, it get, basically gets, you know, pulled out from underneath your feet, uh, and people feel that every day. That is the dollar purchasing less. That is the, you know, gallon of gas, four dollars a gallon versus seventy-five cents. Um, it is the ribeye costing twenty dollars rather than five dollars. That happens as a function of time, but but when people start to think about the points in time when they deliver value versus when they consume value, uh, it's a very perverse set of economic incentives. And when I say broken, I mean at the end of the day that what will happen to the U.S. dollar or the euro or the yen is what happened to the Venezuelan bolivar. At some point in time, that value goes to zero uh, because they they print money at a cost of zero. Uh, and it really isn't a, a sustainable situation at all. And it can persist as a function of time, but it can't terminally. Man, there's so much
0: in that. I mean, go to zero because it's, the cost is zero. is any technology app will show you that. Like, what did you pay for, you know, the the clock app on your iPhone? Absolutely nothing because there's no cost of production. Uh, another thing that you said about people have to take like 100 hours to even understand the monetary system. I think that's kind of a trap. Uh, there's, I don't remember who said this, but somebody said of oh, the way that money is created in fractional reserve, that it, the process is so simple that the mind is repelled by it. And, and I, I've seen, and I'm talking smart people here back in my days in corporate America and all, where these discussions would come up having drinks after hours or something. And you'd explain how when somebody gets a mortgage, the bank doesn't give the money. Their promise of money creates money. And you'd see serious cognitive dissonance. And again, I'm not talking about dumb people here. I'm talking about people that run you know, large companies and things like that. They just never even thought about it. And it, it's almost like, well, that it's not that it's hard to understand. It's that the mind says this can't be true. Banks are also printing money. No, that's the, no, the government prints money. Well, actually, the Federal Reserve prints money in concert with the government, and then the banks print more money. And so this creates this velocity of money through the economy. And I guess it can take hours and hours for somebody to understand that, but I think it's more because – it's very difficult to accept. It's not so much. It's difficult to comprehend.
1: I I think, well, I would say it's both, right? Like I think what you said, what you described is absolutely true. Um, that, that when you, when you explain the reality, it sounds so ridiculous that, that, that the default assumption is that you don't know what you're talking about. They would have told me that uh, in school, right? I mean, yeah. And I, I go back to, to like, you know, kind of one, one iteration before, um, the, the bank issuing a loan and creating money via, via that mechanism where, and I think there is some cognitive dissonance in it where I'm like, from 2020 to 20, 2022, the Federal Reserve created five trillion new dollars and that the way that that, that happens is that functionally a, click of a button on a computer screen happens that that when i talk about it costing zero to produce a dollar it costs zero to produce a dollar it Costs zero to produce a trillion dollars it costs zero to produce five trillion dollars uh, that is why its price will trend to zero because because it costs nothing and not just that it costs nothing but that they persistently print trillions of dollars and truthfully the number trillion is too large of a number for any of us to actually conceive of in our daily lives of what it means, yeah. but that is, that is the reality of what they're doing. And that when people say like that can't be true, it absolutely is true. And that, um, you know, if you look to the current, uh, president of the fed, um, and or Ben Bernanke before it, like they say this out loud. You know, like don't trust us. Like take it straight from the horse's mouth. Uh, Neil Kashkari, the, the Minnesota Fed president, had a famous um, comment on 60 Minutes where he said we have an unlimited uh, amount of cash. But also Ben Bernanke and Jerome Powell have described the actual process by which they can just click a button on a computer screen and credit more money into to banks' accounts. That is that is the operation of how the five trillion gets created. Button can, in New York, gets clicked and you you producing value and getting paid dollars happens in a very different operation. Um, so I think that that is difficult for people to grasp or accept just because they're like, can't be true. When I'm talking about the hundred hours, it's like why it's, it's more so like asking the question about like, why did the dollar exist in the first place mm. at a, at an atomic level? What is money? Um, a lot of times people will say it's a collective hallucination or a belief system. Uh, I reject those. Um, it is it is objective, um, and that to really understand the objectivity of money, um, even though it might be esoteric and there might be some intangible properties of it, that it is objective, um, and that 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 rabbit hole is something that I think a lot of people um, get are daunted. To to undertake, they might worry that if I go down this rabbit hole, I'm not going to understand it. But even that one, I feel like it's more of a common sense uh, evaluation than it is a uh, an IQ, um, cool. because people know how to evaluate A versus B and the properties that exist uh, in in one economic good versus another.
0: You know, and their cost of production is good, but the cost is zero, but the the, the cost is not zero. That's the other thing. I think that people need to make the connection then that when they take the zero cost of production of new money, the value has to come somewhere, and all value is derived from the economy in which the money circulates. So when, when Parker has $10,000 in his bank account because he's worked really hard and saved some money, and I print new money and I devalue the existing money by, let's say, 2%, that 2% comes out of Parker's $10,000 and everybody else's money. And that's what you were talking about. Your unit of production is devalued across time and infinitely so across a long enough period of time. Because even though it doesn't cost them anything to make that money, the value of it must come from somewhere. And it comes from the energy. It comes from the goods and services. It comes from the value exchange between individuals, companies, et cetera, in the economy. And that's a – that's a difficult thing to comprehend as well for people. It, it, it seems that that's a hard thing to explain.
1: Yeah, I, I do agree with that. And I I think when I, I try to tie it back to that time, if I save $10,000 thinking about the actual number of hours that I put in in the past um, that I can never get back and that when the Fed Via its operations produces money at a production cost of zero. They're introducing more money into the system, which devalues all of it. I am bearing the cost of that. Correct. I'm bearing the cost of that in the present and in the future. So there absolutely is an economic cost. Uh, it's just not borne by necessarily those that produce it.
0: Agreed. So let's talk a little bit. Then, and then how does Bitcoin as a, as a monetary instrument, a monetary good differ? from the fiat monetary system.
1: So I would say, and I I do think it's it's the greatest of contrasts and I try to um, simplify it down uh, to a few kind of AB test type items. Um, And that kind of at its most fundamental level, um, dollars are infinite um, because the Fed can produce them, but it's not just the Fed, it's central banks all over the world. Um, and if dollars are infinite, that Bitcoin and I and I always, whenever I sit down and explain Bitcoin to somebody, I always say there's one thing that I ask people to take away. It is that all fundamental value in Bitcoin derives from the fact that there will only ever be 21 million, and that if Bitcoin can credibly enforce a fixed supply of 21 million, which I have a high degree of confidence in not based on prayer and hope, but but based on my own understanding of how Bitcoin works, why it works, what money is, what money isn't, um, that if Bitcoin credibly enforces a fixed supply of 21 million, which my view is inevitable, it will definitionally emerge as the global reserve currency. Uh, and the reason for that, but if I'm comparing and contrasting the legacy system, it is a currency with a finite and fixed supply versus a currency, the dollar system or the euro, the yen, um, that is that is functionally infinite that that becomes more and more abundant as a function of time that is that is the the most important contrast because what bitcoin represents is simply a form of money that can't be printed and what that means is if i'm contributing my time my eight hours in the day or 12 hours in the day today and tomorrow and the next day and i'm being paid in a form of money and it's bitcoin i know that somebody can't come behind me and produce more of that um, it is, it is not as simple as that because the, the how that happens is Bitcoin's true zero to one innovation. Um, it is, it is, it is not trivial and that when I think an important thing that, that I like to bring up for people is there's a thousand cryptocurrencies and I like to be clear with this because it's hard for people to grasp this. I, some people will say 95% of everything else is probably junk, just like venture capital investing. I say no. 100% of it is. Mm-hmm. Um, that th- there is a reality that we all, we all gravitate and converge on one form of money because it's solving a problem of trade. Like you, Jack, you and I have to agree on what the form of money is in order for me right. to pay you. I, I had to have the form of money and you had to be willing to accept the form of money. We, we objectively evaluated all forms of money in the market in order to be able to form a consensus. But that problem that exists between you and I exists between the third person that comes into our arrangement of trade and potential trading partners, that same problem extends out to all seven to eight billion people in the world. And so when, but when I'm comparing and contrasting, I do think it's important to like draw that distinction because when I'm comparing the Bitcoin system to the dollar system, it is finite supply. That is why it's fundamentally valuable to how that happens is Bitcoin's true innovation um, but it is solving that specific problem of governments and central banks and banks printing trillions of dollars. Um, but we only need one solution because we, inherent in the problem of what money solves is this problem of trade and exchange. And that is something that is intersubjective between between the two of us. Um, but then when I extend it further, I would say that not only does the Fed and banks, however you want to think about it, create money out of thin air, uh, they do it arbitrarily. Um, so Bitcoin not only has a fixed supply, but it is not issued arbitrarily. It is, it is issued based on proof of work, based on the security apparatus that is in place to actually protect and enforce that fixed supply. Um, on the one hand, the, the Fed has presidents and chairmen uh, and 12 group of people who get to decide how that that money is arbitrarily issued, when it's issued, who it's issued to, how much it's issued. Uh, Bitcoin does not work that way. It has a fixed supply. No one is in in control of it. Bitcoin doesn't have a CEO. There's no group of people that get together that decide that the supply is going to remain fixed. Um, The the supply is enforced by the entire network of people who've adopted Bitcoin as a a monetary standard, Um, and that it's not just some sort of piece of software that governs and dictates that Bitcoin will only ever have a fixed supply of $21 Um, it is the network incentives as a whole, and that's everybody running software, everybody using Bitcoin, everyone completing payments in Bitcoin, everyone running a Bitcoin node, validating rules, all the miners in the world that are spread out um, in every geographically you know, dispersed location. Uh, and that only happens because Bitcoin is decentralized. That's another way that um, the, the Bitcoin system is, is different than the legacy system. Bitcoin is decentralized. The legacy system is centralized. Uh, it wouldn't be possible in a decentralized system for 12 people to get around a group uh, table and decide to print five trillion dollars. You can't do that in Bitcoin. But the only reason why you can't do that uh, is because it is decentralized. No one is in control versus a very few group of people, uh, very few number of people being in control of the a legacy system.
0: Agreed, and I think that part of that is the the true market discovery of prices based on cost of production. So what I mean is if half the Bitcoin miners quit tomorrow, Bitcoin would keep going and we would probably have some pretty slow blocks for a week until the difficulty adjustment came down. But that that would that would happen. Or if the number doubled tomorrow, the difficulty adjustment would go up, but we would still remain at the same emission schedule across time. We know how much Bitcoin there will ever be, but we also know like how much Bitcoin there will be this year. It's, right. I, I, I've equated it to like it, economists should love Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin is the speed of light to money as this or the, is to money is the speed of light is to physics. It's the constant. It's, it's the only economic constant that we really have, which means you actually can be predictable in it. But then market can truly discover price because if it really did cost, like there might be people losing a little bit of money mining Bitcoin right now because they're speculating Most of them are still profitable because they're getting the cheapest energy they can. You will only produce a unit at a loss without a government subsidy for so long before you'll stop producing it. So it's going to be that the, the, the value of Bitcoin will adjust relative to production across time. And it has to. And and it took me a long time to get there. That's what finally pushed me to the last bit of being a Maxi. I was like a 95% Bitcoin guy. And then I was like a 99% Bitcoin guy. But when I truly understood that mechanism and you threw the lightning network on top of it, that solved all these other issues that people were bringing up was like, it's going to be the one thing, but it's really just a, a, a form of Gresham's law. Cause I'll even have people now like Jack, I want to pay you for a membership in some shit coin. And I'm like, all right, but I just want you to know you're depositing it to an exchange account and I want Bitcoin. And so I'm still getting Bitcoin in the end.
1: And yeah, that's like I mean, a
0: microcosm of what you just described. That's one person making that journey. And what you're describing is over time, the majority of people making that journey.
1: Right. And that, um, that as a function of time, More people, the way I describe how Bitcoin gets adopted is that it's not actually knowledge distribution that people have to form, just as you explained, like 95 percent, 99 percent. Then, you know, you were there 100 percent that everybody has their own individual journey. But everybody needs this economic good called money and that 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 what we call money is doing one thing for everybody simultaneously, which is storing value into the future. Or another way to describe it would be intermediating a series of exchanges. I earn money today and then I'm going to spend some of it in a day, in a week, however long I'm going to save it, a month, a year, but I'm spending it at those points in time and, and the, the value that it's delivering is storing value in time. And so if you get paid in some shitcoin, whether it's the dollar or some cryptocurrency A through Z or thousand, you're making the decision A, A versus B which these these two things are designed to do the same thing, which one is going to do it better. Uh, and if you need that thing to trade in the future, it is intersubjective in the sense of you're objectively evaluating it, but so too is everybody else in the market. And your decision is based on what am I going to accept? What is the guy who sells beef going to accept? What is the rancher? Uh, the guys at the beef initiative, you know, they look at the same equation. If you want their cow, their proof of work, if you want their barrel of oil, You gotta pay them in a form of money that they're willing to accept. And there is that convergence because we're evaluating it based on it performing the exact same function for all of us, um, which is different than all of our individual consumer preferences, which which vary, um, versus storing value in time. And then the other thing I would just mention is what you were you were talking about in terms of you know, kind of that, the idea of block production and the sequencing of it of like miners cut in half. One of the ways that I help people understand that is thinking about, and and it it is different, but there are similarities. It's like when the price of oil comes down, a bunch of people producing oil who are above the marginal cost have to shut down and then the 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 market finds a new inqu- equilibrium now money sure. serves a very different function than energy but it but it's very similar in that regard if if uh the price comes down and certain miners can be profitable they will functionally turn off and then that benefits and constantly calls the herd and drives uh the greatest efficiency in the network which is to to seek out and search out the the cheapest cost of power uh, and that that goes on consistently because of the economic incentives of the network as a whole
0: yeah um And the difference, of course, being when the price of oil goes up, people drill harder, pump harder, and make more oil. When the price of Bitcoin goes up, more and more people seek it, but you don't
1: get more Bitcoin. That's the critical difference, the inelasticity. And
0: that goes right into where I want to go next with, with, with gold and silver. I have a lot of, I guess you would call the sons of Peter Schiff in my audience, right? They The gold and uh they love the gold. And I, I don't hate precious metals. I have a, some holdings in, in precious metals. I just think it makes lousy money. And much as if the price of oil goes way up, they will produce more oil. If the price of gold goes up, gold miners will produce more gold. And that's part of the issue. But I don't. I don't hate on that group of people. I often look at them. This is going to sound a little weird, but you mentioned ranchers. Uh, I, I often look at them kind of the way I look at vegans in regard to me when they when they, they correctly identify the problem with things like CAFOs. They they perfectly identify that we're producing these, these animals in a horrible way. We're shoving them into these CAFOs. We're feeding them grain. They're not supposed to eat that. But the solution then would be, well, then we should be eating beef that is grass-fed, not we shouldn't eat beef. And I feel like a lot of the modern gold and silver advocates, they've identified the, the problem with the monetary system very well, but they've chosen an instrument. that's not good today as money. It's, it can't move at the speed of light. It's not programmable. Uh, there is no way to self-custody it and have that flexibility with it. And so what are your thoughts on the variance between Bitcoin as money and gold and silver as money?
1: 100% agree with you in that that idea that I think that um proponents of gold and silver and commodity monies have uh, appropriately and perfectly identified the problem and the symptoms of the problem and then uh, get the solution wrong um and and I think that that is also very logical. I equate it in many ways to to myself um where coming from the legacy financial system trained classically in Keynesian economics, schooled in the way of uh, a certain way of thought to reject Bitcoin. Um, that, that kind of having been so right about the problems, but not coming to the right answer is a really hard thing to reverse on. So that's one thing I would say um, that, that, it, that, it's kind of you you, when you when you're so right about the problem it's difficult to de-anchor yourself from having been wrong about what the solution to that problem might be now I also try to relate it to my own experience because I think my own experience is symptomatic of what uh, people who are proponents of say going back on a gold standard have to accept or at least have to question which is that when I when I started going down the what is money rabbit hole, at that point in time I was someone who would have said gold is a barbaric relic. Um, that you know would say, hey, you know, if, if I ever wanted gold, I'd rather have you know cows and guns. Um, like it's a shiny rock that can't do anything. Then mm-hmm. I went down. Then I went down the the rabbit hole of what is money, and started to understand why gold emerged as money yeah. over th- over thousands of years that was critical to my being able to understand Bitcoin as money. Uh, I just happened to be looking at gold with a fresh set of eyes at the same time that I was also understanding Bitcoin rather than being anchored in time to it. Um, But just stating that understanding why gold was money was critical to my own understanding of of why Bitcoin was money. Um, And what I started to develop a framework around was that that when you get to the, uh, the core of why gold emerges money, that there, there were an inherent set of properties that existed in gold um, that were unique to gold when you added them up that made gold the best form of possible money that could have ever existed. Uh, the same properties that cause gold to emerge as money, I would put forward, exist in Bitcoin, but not only exist in Bitcoin, have been perfected in Bitcoin, right. and that it's that that it's not marginal, that it's orders of magnitude, that that it that it exists in a different plane. And I think one of the things and I'm very sympathetic to it. Um, but one of the things that I that I put forward in a very respectful way to um, to to people who've who've saved in gold for a long time are f- are a few things. One of which is that this anchoring to to the physicality of gold. And, and and what what i had to develop in my own framework was there were thousands of things that were physical there were many different forms of commodities um it actually had to be something other than its physicality that caused gold to emerge as the the preferred form of money um uh, that that it was actually the physical nature of it was not the thing that was unique about it it was the fungibility of gold, the indestructibility of it, the ability to melt it down and divide it and coin it, and that those coins would, you know, kind of whatever was in one coin versus the other, that was perfectly pure, that the physicality of it was the last thing that that made it the preferred choice. Um, the other thing that I point to people is that if they started a more fundamental level that and I and when I'm explaining Bitcoin to people, I actually use gold. I say you have to accept that gold emerged as money. Um, you might not be able to explain why that happened, and you might not need to in order to understand Bitcoin, but you have to accept that it happened, um, that the entire world converged on one monetary standard. Now, that doesn't mean that you that individuals couldn't make a wrong choice or that countries couldn't even make a wrong choice. Certain countries went on the silver standard and had their wealth expropriated. They made a bad choice. Um, but that the world did converge on one form of money as a monetary standard. And the key question is why? And was that by coincidence? Uh, It wasn't by coincidence that gold emerges money, nor is it by coincidence that Bitcoin is emerging as money. And that if people accept that the world converges on one form of money for reasons, very fundamental to the the problem that that money solves um, that, just as people evaluated gold versus silver and chose gold, people are evaluating gold versus Bitcoin. And the more that do, that go down that fundamental rabbit hole of storing value into time and the the objective properties that exist between Bitcoin and gold, more people end up saying, I would rather store my value in Bitcoin. And the way that I compare it, like heads up because that just as I'm evaluating Bitcoin versus dollar, I'm also evaluating Bitcoin versus gold. And if the world converges to one form of money, the same way that it, that it exists in the past, to converge on gold, uh, the same will be true of Bitcoin. And then the relevant questions come in, you know. And the way I think about it is, yes, bit, uh, gold is relatively scarce, but Bitcoin is finitely scarce. Mm-hmm. Um, Bitcoin is a- or gold is able to be divided and aggregated in parts that are fungible uh but that is difficult to do it's difficult to assay gold uh, it's very easy effortless to divide up bitcoin aggregate bitcoin and assay bitcoin um and then bit, uh, gold was actually susceptible to centralization because those those um you know properties existed in gold but were difficult um Gold needed to be stored in a physical location and then assayed at that physical location, coined in a certain way uh, so that so you could develop trust that if you were getting a gold coin that it was actually gold. Um, but that, that were, there was a lot of risk embedded in that. Even those, uh, those properties existed. Uh, those problems are solved in Bitcoin. So when you combine finite scarcity with the ability to easily divide and aggregate with this mic drop capability of Bitcoin, which is you can take that physical property of scarcity – and transmit it over a communication channel that's that's that 's the mic drop, and that when you compare a versus b gold versus Bitcoin of what properties actually make something more more or less functional as a form of money um, that the consensus actually is important because mm-hmm. money is solving a problem of trade, and that the more people that do that it doesn 't matter how anchored you are to to gold it matters what the consensus of money is. And with each new person that picks up that that equation or that problem and looks at gold vis-a-vis Bitcoin, whether they're doing it consciously or subconsciously, if it's subconsciously, it's like which one's preserving value over time. If it's consciously, they're doing that objective evaluation, that they they will arrive at that conclusion of of Bitcoin over gold um, on those very fundamental properties uh, of money. And that it's not one of those scenarios where you can just you know, sit in the corner and cover your eyes because what everybody else decides is consequential to you because they are your future trading partners. They are the pr- people who will be providing goods and services and say, pay me in Bitcoin versus pay me in some other form of money.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, let's be fair. Let's say you and I were born 40 years earlier. And we were at where we are in our walk in life now, and it was forty years ago. And we were having this conversation. I don't know on the, on the telephone with with somebody holding the pictures for somebody else in a room to watch uh, something like that, or like over television or something. You and I might be sitting here right now making a really strong case for gold because forty years ago we didn't have this option. Nobody had conceived of this option, and so I mean, we, we we would have been right. Because how do you I mean, make it? How do you make an eight look like a ten? Put one eight in a room full of fours, right? And then all of a sudden the eight looks like a 10. And then when the 10 walks in, you can see the difference. And, and, and nobody needs to take that being nasty about anybody. It's just a reality check. Like what looks like perfect may not be perfect until you actually see perfect.
1: Right. And what I would put forward is that that, that does, that is what makes it difficult. Cause like, oh, well, gold's an eight and Bitcoin's a 10. I'm good if I, you know, just yes. have this eight. But in reality the and again not in a um, here. not in a disrespectful way but be, but but anchored to this principle that if you accept that there was some rhyme or reason why the world converged on gold, the one thing um, then and, and that that is not a hallucination that it was mm-hmm. for very rational reasons, even if everyone who was adopting it didn't necessarily understand this consciously that if the world converged on one and it happened for very. Tangible objective reasons, then that's going to guide what happens next. That the world is going to converge to one. And if it is eight and it is ten and ten is clearly better than eight, then the world converges on ten. Um, yeah, because and, everybody and, can
0: have ten. That's, that's the big yeah. difference. It's it, since everybody can have the ten. Then why would you take the eight? And and again, right. don't get too subjective in bar room mind thought with that. People think of what ten would mean to you in the total package in all things. Then you would definitely take the ten over the eight, and everybody would. And, right. and that's kind of what we're talking about here.
1: Because because they have because their de- decision is dependent on what everybody else is going to accept as a form of money. Because what it actually translates to is somebody in the future delivering gas to the gas station and saying, pay me an X, um, food to the grocery store and pay me an X that it's not just storing value, but then being able to convert that value in time, in the future. And that is why when I say you're, it's an intersubjective problem that we're all objectively evaluating the eight versus the 10, the A versus the B, but our decision is informed by what that next person is going to value in the future, what what their objective evaluation of be, what a better form of money is, because if I don't have it at that point in time, I'm SOL.
0: Yeah, and so let's talk about the $21 million supply limit and how it's enforced because that's really important because one way we can look at Bitcoin is, is energy storage uh, with a zero cost to store. Once It might be a fee to transfer it, but once I have it, it doesn't cost me anything to store my bitcoin it cost me in security and weight and space to secure gold it definitely cost me in in fiat just through inflation and if if fiat or this, if this was how i got paid every week and it was a certain amount of energy was shoved into here like a battery and when i went to pay for something i transferred a little bit of energy to the other side of it kind of like with bitcoin inflation is that this battery gets drained by a certain percentage over time across time forever and then the Bitcoin choice, what makes it better is it doesn't get drained. If I have 5.35 Bitcoin, I have 5.35 Bitcoin forever. There's never a piece of it that bleeds off. There's no emission that comes out of it. But that's all predicated on the fact that no one can just make more Bitcoin. And I think people often say, but since it's backed by nothing, which is total nonsense, but I can understand why somebody feels that way. They don't, I think, understand or believe, maybe is the right word, that this 21 million hard cap is truly a 21 million hard cap.
1: Yeah, in one way, cause when I'm explaining Bitcoin, I like to focus on the why. It's like the why and the how. Um, because first people have to understand why a fixed supply of 21 million that you could transmit over the internet is of value to the world functionally Every human being in the world, because Bitcoin is permissionless and it's censorship resistant, anyone that, you know, there are some requirements, you have to have a connection to the Internet um, to to be able to access it or a mesh network and others. But functionally speaking, for most people, the Internet, Um, you have to understand why that would be a value to the world, because that unit of currency is the thing of value worth protecting, worth securing, worth ensuring. So you might hear the term Bitcoin mining and not understand what exactly that is. You might hear the word a node and you, uh, and validation, but you don't necessarily know exactly what that is. Um, but first the why we would all benefit. People can easily say, Hey, if there existed this form of money that couldn't be printed, would that be of value to the world? Most people with common sense would say yes. I sure. could be paid in a form of money, A, that can't be printed. And my alternative is B, one that is either mined at 2% incrementally a year or, um, or printed by the, the, the trillions. I'll choose A. Um, well, that thing being a value creates the economic incentive to secure it. And that every it's I, I like to tell people: first focus on the why, and that will inform the how. The how is is the the zero to one, mind-boggling. Humans are uh, like human ingenuity is is like beyond like things that 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 we can truly appreciate because that there's a lot that goes into the how and I tell people just accept that there's a lot that goes into it and if you focus on the why that will inform your understanding of, of, of how but that when people say Bitcoin is not backed by anything like they print five trillion dollars and the way that that happens is literally a computer screen people will yeah. say they when you when they say the dollars backed by something they'll say the full faith and credit of the US government they'll say uh you know the IRS. will say um, you know military guys with guns, and and then I like to 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 again respectfully point out that every fiat currency that's ever hyperinflated uh, had a government that put its full faith and credit in it, uh, that had a taxing authority, and that had a military with guns. Um, that the government does not um, tax things, or that government taxation does not give things value. Governments tax things that are of value. Um, and that, that in this world, Bitcoin is protected and secured by a number of key apparatuses that, that, you know, involve mining, that involve nodes validating all, um, all transactions ever by everyone. But there's this very important economic incentive that it is, Bitcoin is controlled by no one. It is fully decentralized. It, it gets more and more decentralized as more people adopt it as a standard. Um, and that nobody has an incentive to let somebody else that they do not know print money, Um, that everyone is pointing a gun at everybody else, Hmm. Um, and that, you know, imagine there's a 100 people and there's 99 of them all validating Bitcoin transactions and consuming real-world energy as part of that security function, Um, that that one person that says, hey, pay me, you know, 21 million and one, everybody else pointing the gun would say, uh, I just shot you. You're dead. You don't you're exist dead. in my world. Yeah. Um, uh, that's not a Bitcoin. And so, um, that when people start to, once they a- answer the questions of the, why it exists and it says, now everybody in the world has an interest in securing that. And it's not that we all get together. It's that the economic incentives and the construction of the network, uh, make it, um, impossible functionally to undermine it. But that, That inability to undermine it is also because the economic incentives are all aligned behind. I have an incentive to prevent everybody else from printing more money. And if I can't do it, nobody else can. And that's the economic incentive that the Bitcoin network as a whole enforces. So the best way to describe it is like a massive game of Mexican standoff. Um, Another way to think about it is like everyone's pointing the gun at each other saying, no, you cannot print money. Um, or I don't have an economic incentive. And because the network is so large, um, nobody, like people, it's not possible for people to collude, um, to get together. That was attempted in 2017, uh, and failed fantastically and miserably.
0: Beautifully. Um,
1: and, and beautifully. And what that also did was it formed everyone about that fact that Bitcoin was sufficiently large to, um, to fend off beautifully, like not even a chance, not even a question. Uh, maybe it, like, you know, where like some miners got together and tried to change something, not about the supply, but about um, the what's referred to as the block size. Yep. But, but more, more importantly, it is now the Bitcoin network is 20 times as large or four. No, it's like it's probably 30 times as large as that point. And the energy that's securing it is, you know, 20 to 30 X as well and more distributed. And so that game of people pointing guns at each other is getting larger and larger. There's more and more people guns, which makes it harder and harder, and not in the physical sense. Like, because I, I do, I do fall on this uh, line that like Bitcoin's not a weapon. I'm just using the analogy of mm-hmm. of thinking about it it being more and more decentralized. That the more and more decentralized it is, the um, the harder and harder it would be to collude or to aggregate the the amount of energy that it might require to um, to write an invalid transaction to to the Bitcoin ledger.
0: Well, and, like, so I, I bring this, exactly what you're saying up, whenever somebody starts talking about, well, you know, one day they'll, the government will have enough energy uh, or, or computing power to do it or quantum computers or whatever, you know, black pill ideas floated. And what I've always pointed out is any technology that's developed will be disseminated. And so if you had really badass, you know, way more powerful than ASICs uh, that we have today available to you, the most profitable thing you could do would be going to mining Bitcoin, right? And, and that, th- all that computing power doesn't come for free. Like you said, when you look at the size of the Bitcoin network, and I find this like one of the most encouraging things, you know, as I've watched the evolution of this is you have energy costs at an all-time high. You have Bitcoin at an all-time low or anything, but a real low compared to the top of the market in this last cycle. And then you have the hash rate at like an all-time high. Like that, that only works, again, if, if Bitcoiners are figuring out how to get access to the most inexpensive energy possible? You know, co-location with energy production facilities, uh, flare gas operations—all of these different things that that they're doing to keep energy costs down. But it shows that I don't know that you could put together a scenario that would test it harder at this point. You could have came up with a scenario that would have tested harder in 2014, but not in 2022.
1: Right. And I think that consistently happens as a function of time, um, that as the network gets larger, as it gets more decentralized, it is more resistant to uh, exogenous forces or external attack. And I do – I think the point that you appropriately raised there, which is uh, – because this all does come back to economic incentives, which is when people say that Bitcoin isn't backed by anything and when people say, uh, you know, the 21 million, how do you know – um, you need to get down to that next level of how the security um, apparatus actually functions and the economic incentive is part of it. Uh, but if the, the Bitcoin network is secured by, you know, I'm not sure where it is today, but um, kind of estimated to be in the, the 18, 20 gigawatt range, again, not controlled by any single party, um, but, you know, one megawatts to 10 megawatts, you know, a couple hundred megawatts, but it's distributed all over the world. Um, if you think that Bitcoin is backed by nothing, go actually to a Bitcoin mine and listen to the Bitcoin miners. And and when you hear that noise, and and you will see the the energy infrastructure that is supporting it. Then you say, well, I don't. I might not understand how this all fits together, but there's something like these people are doing something, and that, that it's uh, it's important to then ask that question. But but that if you kind of Pull it out and you say, Hey, somebody might build a 200 megawatt Bitcoin mine and that might cost the equivalent in today's dollars of a uh, of billion dollars of purchasing power. And that might take that the planning process, the execution, the getting online might take two years. So you're, you're two years and the equivalent of a billion dollars in the, in the, in the ground. And if you, try to say, pay me more Bitcoin that are consistent with the 21 million supply cap, you get zero. Yeah. And,
0: and if you,
1: right. And if you mine Bitcoin and you secure the network and you contribute that power to securing the Bitcoin network, all you get paid in is Bitcoin. So you've sunk, you have sunk costs in the ground. If you try to deviate and, and, and award yourself more Bitcoin that would be consistent with 21 million. You, you your investment is sunk and you get paid zero. And if you if you um, mine Bitcoin and secure the Bitcoin network, you only get paid in Bitcoin. So the thing that you are sec- securing is the is the the medium of exchange that you are paid in. So why in any rational world would someone invest those dollars and then undermine their investment? What people would typically say is like, oh, it would be a um, it would be a nation state. The U.S. government would do that. Um, well, the government needs money too, um, and if they aggregated all of that power, they too would find out that they have the economic incentive just to secure the Bitcoin network and to earn Bitcoin. Yeah. Because, what about, because you can't you can't fund the military. You can't fund a military. You can't staff the IRS. You can't. Um, do anything that you want to do as a government if you don't have a form of money that works and that the economic principles that understand, uh, underpin and um, dictate what makes something a better or worse form of money in that objective evaluation do not change uh, based on what the government does.
0: What do you say to the person that's like, but anybody can make another <laughs> cryptocurrency just like Bitcoin? Like I, I can copy and paste code. Um, I think you actually – Hit quite a bit of it right there because without that, that security behind it that makes, you know, Bitcoin as a network is the most successful things measured by dollars humans ever have ever done inside a decade. It, it, we've never done anything as successful, but there is that thought. Well, you know, I can make Jack coin. You can make Parker coin. You know, hunters could make hunters coin who's here in our chat with us. What, what's the real difference there?
1: So I guess I'll start with, because I think you said a lot of your viewers might be on the the commodity money gold train. I think it's very similar to um, fool's gold. Imagine I went and got a rock and painted it the color of gold. You as a gold holder understand that there's a difference between those two things. And you're like, I'm not taking your fool's gold or your rock painted gold as gold. That's not gold. Very similar in Bitcoin. Um, it's, I, I own Bitcoin validated by the Bitcoin network. You create fool's gold and try to sell me it as gold, or you try to say, this is better than gold. And then you, then you become a snake oil salesman. Um, and, and so I think it's like anchoring to there. All other cryptocurrencies are like fool's gold, or they are like a rock painted gold trying to be passed off as, as Bitcoin. You also, though, I always anchor this, you have to, and, I, and, and gold is a great example because you have to understand that the world converges on a single form of money. That doesn't mean that it's 100% to zero, it doesn't mean that cigarettes might not be used or might be used in prison uh, as a form of money and that there's there's some like tale of of things in certain local economies that might function better as money than, than, than the, the world's primary form of money that commands 99.9% of economic value. Uh, that's what we're talking about. But that if you accept that the world did converge and gold as a monetary standard, then the question is, why did that happen? And will it happen in the context of Bitcoin? And do I actually, and then in an in individual circumstances, do I, do I interact on a daily basis with more than one form of money? When I'm actually going to the store and buying groceries, going to the gas station, paying for power, going to a ball game, all these people are accepting one form of money in my local economy. Why is that by coincidence? And so, without that grounding on the economic principles, you'll never get to the point of understanding why, if I create copy two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of Bitcoin, why they aren't Bitcoin. That the that the right analogy there is the fool's gold one. Now, if I come to Bitcoin and start at the first principles of Bitcoin, it is that the Bitcoin code base can be copied. It has been copied. The Bitcoin code base is open source. I could go copy the Bitcoin code base tomorrow and say that there will only ever be 21 million. Take my Parker coin. And you would look at it and you would say, Hey, like one, how do I know that there's only going to be 21 million? I'm just taking your word. And this key element is introduced of trust versus trustless. Bitcoin is decentralized. Uh, it is trustless. If I create copy B. Now you're taking my word because all of the properties that exist in Bitcoin, you can copy the code base, but you cannot copy the monetary properties. You cannot copy that 18 to 20 gigawatts of power that's that's increasing as a function of time. You can't copy all of the infrastructure that exists to secure Bitcoin, um, going from hardware wallets to multisig to um, to the ability to help people buy and sell Bitcoin to the Lightning Network to To people, you know, investing in QR codes to make transactions easier. um, All of that infrastructure can't be copied and ported over. That requires human time um, and, and effort. And then you extend that out. Okay, if the difference is that you copy the code base, but the infrastructure doesn't exist, and you're 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 creating a trusted system that is centralized versus a trustless system that is decentralized. And if money does one thing in terms of securing value into the future and then allowing you most efficiently to convert that back into real world goods and services and you only need one, uh, that that thing is not just marginally inferior, it is absolutely inferior. It is It is inferior to the point of being rendered useless because throughout that process, you have the ability to opt into A, which is Bitcoin.
0: See, and we have a, a. At this part, I know this person. They're asking a legitimate question in their mind here. What you know, Bitcoin started with a couple of computers, and I think there is a point where a thing takes over, and it is, and it's the thing you want. Um, yes, you could make another cryptocurrency. I, I could take open source software, WordPress, and open source plugin called BuddyPress, and I can make a clone of Facebook. I can roll that out tomorrow morning, and nobody will use it. Right. The decision's been made. Nobody's putting a Litecoin mining operation into a co-location facility at a wind farm with oil-cooled cu- ASICs. You probably right now, this minute, could make some money, but nobody is doing it. Everybody that's going to go that far has already made this decision. This, this decision has been made. This momentum has happened. This network exists. And so now you're looking at it, going, "Well, I'll make one with a bigger block size. I'll I'll make 81 million instead of 21 million. I'll make 200 billion instead of like no matter what, you know, the block size will be larger. We'll use this other methodology to transfer so it to be cheaper or whatever. It doesn't matter. This decision has been made at such a level that you now have this juggernaut that I just don't think. I don't care what you put out, it doesn't matter anymore. It, it's it's all that infrastructure is there it's not moving right and I think growing.
1: that 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 buried in there was the killer app is you have a form of money that can't be printed correct right and that the best you can do like that one that is the primary value proposition and two uh, that the best anything else could do is match it so on the thing that is most important the very best you could do is Get to a, a, a an optimal state that just equates to it that that would be replicating. And when we think about uh, technology adoption, you you don't re- have one technology replace another by being just as good. Now there's a reality that when you go down this rabbit hole, you will fi- figure out that because Bitcoin already exists and has solved this problem of delivering to the world a form of money that can't be printed, that that good B is always inferior because uh, it can't replicate it because Bitcoin already exists. Now, a second thing, because I do, I do think that this is important, which is um, that when Bitcoin was created in 2000, when, when you know basically the documentation was put out for it in October of 20, 2008, and the network was lit up in two thousand nine, that when there was one person in the network it was centralized. When there was two people in the network, it was centralized. That right. that Bitcoin's code base to this day is not money. It's just messages being passed back and forth on the internet uh and being enforced by and those messages being you know written into a distributed, basically, basically computers all over the world. Uh, you can think about it as a distributed computer, but it's really individual computers that are all validating other computers' transactions and messages that they're passing back and forth. But that Bitcoin wasn't money when it uh, when it was launched. At some point in time, it became money. It became useful as a tool as money. Uh, and and that once it achieves some level of, of of consensus or some level of sufficient decentralization, that the core things that define what is and is not a Bitcoin couldn't be changed, and those those are principally that there will only ever be 21 million, such that any Bitcoin that is being sent that is inconsistent with that supply schedule gets rejected by all nodes in the network, and that a Bitcoin that is that is spent can't be spent twice. So, so if I have a Bitcoin and I send it to you for your car, and I send it to another guy for for their car, that the Bitcoin network as a way to to discern which one of those things happened first and only accept one of them as a valid Bitcoin transaction. Um, The same analogy, particularly for gold people, is true of gold. Like imagine, go back. I don't really have my history of when gold started to to truthfully emerge. But just imagine in a a theoretical example, the first ounce of gold is taken from the ground. Gold is not money. No, I was going to say this.
0: Keep going. I was going to say exactly what you're about to say.
1: It is, a, it is a shiny object. It, is, it might yep. be something of value. Uh, it might might have been converted into a tool. But then other people started pulling, recognizing that people valued this thing. And they started going to the earth and, and extracting gold or finding it in a mine. And, and then what happened as a consensus started to emerge that this thing was valuable, even if not understanding consciously or subconsciously what money was, uh, then a monetary system started to be built. So it started with a single ore extracted from the ground. And then as it became valuable, a monetary system was built. That monetary system was vaults and settlement networks and technology to assay gold to determine whether or not it was, uh, it was actually the the physical element of gold, transfer networks, coinage, uh, as that network, as that monetary network was built or all the infrastructure that allowed for a more efficient transaction in gold, uh, that 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 gold actually gained in value because it became a greater utility. Think about Bitcoin as ore in the ground, and with each piece of infrastructure, um, you know again, developing hardware wallets, building mines, building the lightning network that is building the infrastructure that is turning raw ore into an actual utility It's a very it's a very analogous or very parallel process It's happening. It's just happening a lot quicker because knowledge can distribute a lot quicker. And Bitcoin is superior from a monetary perspective in terms of its underlying properties that allow for far faster development of the network. And we have a network today
0: or a series of networks today that didn't exist at the time gold was created. <laughs> but you were going exactly where I was thinking as you were talking your way into that in that when gold was discovered because of, and so some humans discovered this shiny metal and it was a little different it was kind of unique and maybe they made a ring to stick in their nose or in their ear or whatever and it, it did then take this this path that you just described but nobody created the uh the 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 gold foundation to market this idea hey let's turn gold into money just like nobody really did that with bitcoin bitcoin was very organic in the way it came out the the, the person or group of persons they created, as we call Satoshi Nakamoto, just went away. And this thing was there. And, and, you know, people today say, you know, you were lucky to early in or whatever. Anybody could have mined it on a laptop in the beginning and and, and have a huge stack today, but you didn't, but you could have. And that's the thing that I'm sure when gold first started to make its way out into the world as money, acquiring it because gold, when you, you know, as we discovered new lands that hadn't been prospected for gold, the first gold is easy gold. That's where this this analogy really is is very similar
1: but but so, it's also it's also less valuable uh the things correct. that you you know could potentially purchase, and I think that that kind of in that same kind of train of thought um uh, that kind of when we think about early people mining bitcoin, it was like but it wasn't the the utility was so much lower it wasn't a value um and that you had to be a special kind of you know interesting, weird, smart visionary to be investing your own time and energy to doing that because anybody that's held Bitcoin for several years uh, and held it through rises and falls understand, understands that holding Bitcoin psychologically is, is, is very difficult. It might've right. been easy to, to do that, but then to have the foresight to do it, that, that was not easy. And then, you know, when Bitcoin went from one to 10 and back to two and then to, you know, a hundred back to 20 and then to a thousand, if you're still holding Bitcoin, you had, you had some, like incredible vision and understanding of what was happening, and and foresight that that very few people could possibly have. And then because you did that, what you afforded the rest of the world was a form of money that can't be printed. And so whatever they have to pay you to get that out of your um, cold dead hands, um, like you earned every bit of that uh, because. Your willingness to store your value in that and to perform that security of uh, function for the Bitcoin network before it was popular to do so afforded everybody else who comes behind us the opportunity to benefit from sound money that can't be printed, that has a fixed supply that can be transmitted over the internet. Um, and I think that that is, a, that is a very important kind of part of that story. Well, and so
0: one thing that made it easy for me to adopt Bitcoin was the, that I was a person that believed in thermoeconomics, that it was really all about energy. So it was a perfect metaphor for me. But part of understanding that then is if inflation is more and more money chasing less and less goods, then a deflation currency is me because I so value the energy that I'm holding foregoing my consumption of goods and services, which makes actually more available. So the fact that I am unwilling to part with my stack of SATs actually means that there's more of material goods and services for other people. That's partly why they cost less than that scenario, because I have a time preference that says it's worth holding on to this. So it's instead of hoarding, what it really is is foregoing because I could take my Bitcoin and I could go out and acquire a whole bunch of stuff. Well, that pulls that stuff off the market, if that makes sense.
1: Right. And I think that, um, and I wrote an article called uh, Bitcoin is the the great definancialization that, that goes into this which is um you know the Keynesians uh, economists or like just think any central banker or anyone who thinks that managing the money money supply from central command is a good thing they will say that hoarding is bad and I and I start with saying that hoarding is just savings um and then we're getting into the question of what does savings means uh and that you know in the context of Bitcoin I I and in this article I articulate the The world imagine that there's twenty one million bitcoin they're all in circulation currently today there's about nineteen million um, a little bit over that and approximately two million yet to be to be mined over the course of the next hundred and twenty ish years uh, but imagine a world where they all exist. nobody can save any more or less bitcoin in aggregate at any point in time um, and it's i don't know if it's a paradox it seems like a paradox to me. But the fact that people cannot save in aggregate more Bitcoin, can't save more than $21 uh, that actually creates the incentive to save. And that in that world, more people have an incentive to save. And all consumption is what you said is foregoing. All all Mm -hmm. savings is foregoing of consumption. -consumption. And by saving, you're actually creating more people in an economy that have the capacity to consume. And to, Correct. to invest and that I think the right, the right framework of what you were describing is that your decision to save is functionally telling the market that's not good enough. Correct. Like bring, bring me something better. Um, if I have a finite and fixed share of the entire world's form of money and I only got that because I delivered value to somebody else, I now get to decide who gets paid this finite unit of the currency, uh, and that's a very consequential decision. That that once I live in a world where my purchasing power is expected to increase, I I I look at every economic decision, not necessarily everybody, everyone, but like uh directionally every decision with a much closer eye, a sharper pen. Um, but what I'm functionally doing is saying, hey, if you want this Bitcoin or you want this denomination of Bitcoin, these Sats, um, you haven't shown me something good enough. That's what that's what my saving is. I mean, in part, it's me saying I'm going to need this in the future too, uh, but but I'm also communicating my time preference and evaluating whether I consume today or defer it to the future. If my purchasing power is going to increase, I'm more likely to um, to, to defer it. But if someone brings a high-quality good along, I'm more likely to consume because we all have positive time preference. We all have to sustain ourselves, and that is something else that people miss. Imagine 21 million Bitcoin and there's 7.5 billion people in the world that are all competing for the best form of money that's ever existed, and they all have to consume things every single day to sustain themselves. Um, They need food, uh, if they want to improve their condition, they need energy, they need power, they need clean water, um, they need healthcare. Not everyone needs 100% of those things every day, but if seven and a half people, seven and a half billion people need to sustain themselves, they do have to consume every day, and they're all competing for a fixed resource to then allow themselves to build and accumulate more things that make their their lives better on average. So um, I do think that 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 fundamental savings mechanism uh, and and that it is all about aligning all economic incentives across everybody who operates within the Bitcoin network.
0: Yeah, and one of the things I think that has always been an objection to a deflationary currency is the concept of money hoarding. And going back pre-Bitcoin, if I have a coin – I can only make so many pieces of this coin, right? And it, so it, it, it can actually become a problem. While there's only 21 million Bitcoin, I believe it's there's 21 quadrillion Satoshis.
1: Yeah. So we have a
0: long way out before we have to worry about not having enough units. And I've had people say, well, doesn't that actually make it not capped? Well, it's totally capped. If I do cut this coin into 100 million pieces, it still only goes back into one coin,
1: Right. So right. it's not making, I more think that, that, that is one of the pieces. That's one of the strange things that, that it's kind of like boggling to the mind. It might come back to that. The thing we were talking about earlier where it's like, it's so simple that it like hurts people's brains where it's like, if you took a gold bar for, you know, a gold bug and you said, I, I carve it into a hundred units. Did I create more gold or did I just spread it out to more people? Uh, didn't actually change the scarcity dynamic. Uh, a different, you know, another example would be like, imagine I have a pizza and I slice it into a um, hundred slices rather than six. Did Ooh. I feed more people? No. But in the context, so is, so it didn't change the scarcity. But in bitcoins, because I can divide it into functionally uh, a infinitesimal number of units, I can actually create billions of savers. And I can ultimately create a world where a billion people can access this or billions of people can access it and the billions of people can transact. Uh, and so in that sense, it is feeding more people, but it's not actually creating more units of the currency. It's causing the purchasing power as more people adopt it to increase, but it's also allowing them a utility, which is storing value into time and being able to freely transact with people in their local economy or any economy in the world, um, truthfully, and that that when people start to, to understand because I think, you know, one of one of the other I think visualizations really so I'm a very visual person. It's like imagine that fixed supply and it's just a flat line. And then imagine a city being like a physical city being built. All that's happening is the currency is going from person A to person B to person C to person D uh to facilitate trade. But the amount of money is is remaining constant and the actual things that the tools available to us are increasing. That is what purchasing, that is what quote deflation is. That is what purchasing power increasing means. It means that there's more economic goods in the marketplace and you don't actually need more money to, to produce those things. You actually need a, a fixed and constant supply, or at least that would be the optimal state. Um, and that if a, and, and this is something that also I think is very fundamental and true, which is if your form of money is working and when by that, it is being used to produce more things to facilitate more and more trade and to make that trade more efficient and accessible to more people that can offer more goods to the market to trade. That if your currency is not increasing in purchasing power, you almost by definition have a bad form of money. Um, now, it can exist on a spectrum that if one form of money de- de- devalues, uh, you know, s- less Fast than others, and it might still have been a better choice. So there, are, there, are, there isn't necessarily an absolute there. But if a form of money is is working practically, fundamentally, functionally, what it means is that unit of currency is being traded, and we're creating more homes, we're creating more power, we're creating, you know, we're delivering clean water to more people. Um, we're creating more trading partners and those trading partners can then turn around and deliver to the market more goods and services. And with a fixed supply that, that very naturally translates into uh, each unit of currency, increasing in purchasing power rather than, than losing purchasing power, which most people would describe as inflation.
0: Gotcha. Let's talk a little bit about what the company you work for on does and a little bit about Bitcoin ETFs. So, I actually want them to allow the existence of a Bitcoin ETF. I would tell somebody I don't think that you should use that to hold Bitcoin in unless you have money that's somehow captive and there's no other way that you can get exposure to it that way. I, I want to see this for the wall of money it unleashes. I want to see this for, you know, you always get they're going to they're gonna get rid of Bitcoin. They're going to get rid of Bitcoin. I, I, I think the day that Bitcoin is part of a teacher's pension and a firefighter's pension and a cop's pension, we can stop talking about that. Forever. We're just we're done. That becomes a it's like messing with an Indian reservation at that point. You just you're not going to do it. Um, But what do you say as far as like people that want to hold Bitcoin custodial versus non-custodial? And what options are there if they want to hold with using retirement money for it?
1: So, um, one, everything is good for Bitcoin. Um, So if an ETF gets created again, I think that's good for Bitcoin. I I similar to you I wouldn't recommend that people store their wealth in that ETF but some people will and uh, a range of choice in the marketplace is not a bad thing so um I I do believe that that would be a, a good thing um I think that there is no one size fits all uh but I but I, I do I do hold my bitcoin in a certain way um and I I recommend people evaluate the options and understand them to be able to make the best choice for them Um, I think that, you know, the way that I look at it is, you know, you can, well, one, I would step back and I'd say 19 million Bitcoin exists. All of those Bitcoin are controlled by keys, cryptographic keys. The best way to think about that is think about a key fob or think about an iPhone. It's, you know, key lives on a device, can live in other forms as well. Um, but there's a, a device that secures a, a, a cryptographic key. Um, that, that is necessary to move any Bitcoin. But the principal thing being to conceptualize this for people is all 19 bit million Bitcoin are controlled by keys. Now, if you go to a Coinbase, uh, that operates like a legacy bank. Um, a lot of people think about it as Coinbase has your keys. Coinbase does not have your keys. They have their keys and yeah. you have a deposit like you have at the bank and you have to show up nicely to the, to the door of Coinbase and knock on the door and say, um, sir, ma'am, can I please have my money? Um, And at that point in time, they might decide not to give you your money. Um, And that, you know, a lot of people kind of think that at the same time that that becomes an ideological principle, Mm -hmm. um, that, that people who hold their own keys, because the alternative is in Bitcoin, this is what our company does. We help people hold their own coins. We help people do that or their own keys, I should say. We help people do that in in a more secure way Um, for a large universe of people, not for everybody, but for a large range of people. It makes holding keys more accessible Uh, and it puts them in in sovereign control of their Bitcoin in a way that uh, a third party, including our institution, could not prevent them from moving Bitcoin, Um, but it affords them a... Uh, financial institution as a partner to share in the ownership of keys. So the way that our system works is um, when I talk about all 19 million Bitcoin being secured by keys, a Bitcoin or 0.1 Bitcoin or 10 Bitcoin can be secured by a single key or that same atomic unit could be secured by multiple keys. Okay. In our world, uh, there's three keys. Our clients have two keys and we have one. And two out of three keys are required to transfer any Bitcoin. So we cannot move our clients' Bitcoin. We cannot prevent our clients from accessing or transferring their Bitcoin. But we're there as a partner to help them get set up. We hold one of the three keys such that if something happens with one of theirs or one of their backups, we can help them move funds. But importantly, we can't unilaterally do it. And we're there from a technical perspective as a security partner should at any point in the future something come up to be able to help them. So the important distinction is if you're holding your keys... To your Bitcoin, no institution or person can prevent you to access your money. And I think what people saw in Canada um, over the the trucker rally that that without due process, people got locked out of their life savings. Um, it doesn't necessarily even have to be one of those critical failures. It it happens to be. Do you want to put yourself in a position where somebody else could put you between you and your life savings? between the surplus of what you've delivered to other people uh, and have not yet consumed of them. That is the value of, of holding keys at the most fundamental level that at, uh, what we do at Unchained is what what we help individuals and businesses access. But then also there's an important principle baked in, which is not just if you're anchoring to the point of, uh, of censorship, but it is that unless you are holding your own private keys, um, that the way that say you're using a Coinbase your your tethered your your Bitcoin and the way that you access your Bitcoin are tethered to the internet 24/7. You might access your Bitcoin or transfer your Bitcoin very you know few points in time, um, but when you're sleeping, the same way that you would access your Bitcoin is an attacker. The most likely way that that you might lose your Bitcoin is that someone hacks into your account and transfers Bitcoin out. That when you hold your own keys, it is functionally the only way to to eliminate or sever the connection to the internet from how you uh, hold your Bitcoin. And that is one of the greatest source of risk. And so you actually reduce your attack surface. You turn security of your Bitcoin from being in digital form to being in physical form and it actually becomes easier and you get the benefit of not allowing a financial institution, whether it's unchained or any institution to decide to prevent you from accessing your money. And then uh, we can talk about it, but the the question of your retirement, you can also hold, and we do help people do that. We help people uh, hold an IRA in that same approach to, to Bitcoin custody. They get the benefit of Bitcoin, They get the benefit of being tax advantaged, and they hold two out of their three keys. So, Their money, I think, and I and really think about is like it's one of the very few ways to have your retirement actually outside of the U.S. financial system.
0: See, I think people really need to understand the beauty of of multi-signature, which is what you're talking about. So, if I had my key engraved on this this set of fingernail clippers or whatever, and I had a got as safe as I could, storing on my property, a safe company comes out, cores a hole in the foundation, and puts a floor sleeves a floor safe in. Uh, and I, I dropped this down at the bottom of that uh, and it, it's down there. If somebody breaks in the house, you know the odds that a safe crack are good enough to get in there pretty low, but somebody could get their hands on it. Now they have it. Uh, now they can get my Bitcoin. If I'm using a multi-sig and there's a I have a second key stored in an independent place from that location, then they've got nothing. And if this goes away and I can't find it, as long as I have this, and my link to Unchained, or whoever uh, the other party would be in a multi-sig, I still have access to my coin, and my thief does not. And that's hard for people to understand. Because I never gave up control. I had two of three at all times, but I also had a redundancy. I had a two is one, one is none, three is for me, as we right. all the time.
1: And that is also one of like the the most fundamental perfections of, of Bitcoin as money versus gold as an example. Like this idea of multisig. If you have a gold bar, it has to live in one physical location. And this is hard for people to, to, to generally understand, but once they start to get keys in their hand, they start to understand it better. It becomes more intuitive that you could have one Bitcoin. And when I say one Bitcoin, it could be 0.1 Bitcoin. Let's just use the 0.1 Bitcoin analogy because yeah. you could you could save $20 worth of Bitcoin. But let's just say 0.1 Bitcoin. That, that 0.1 Bitcoin could be secured by that one key and then you have a single point of failure Correct. or that one Bitcoin could be controlled by multiple keys at the same time. And what that means is if you say have three keys that are securing it and two of those keys must be used to be able to, to, to create a valid Bitcoin transaction, then that Bitcoin does not live in any one place. Um, it, it atomically does not live oh, in a I single unit. Um, and so that if somebody breaks into a home and seizes a safe, your Bitcoin is not at risk. Uh, and that is not true if there's a gold bar in that safe
0: um,
1: and that what we are in the process of doing through unchained other people in the Bitcoin network as well, we're perfecting the ways to increase the level of Bitcoin security. Um, because in a very similar way to gold that there had to be people that built safes to put gold in and then gold was more secure. Right. Um, yeah. This development of multisig is, is very similar, analogous to that process. That you know, Bitcoin. If we talk about the value proposition of it, the finite supply, the fixed supply, the 21 million. That, that if you can store your wealth in a form of money that can't be printed, it's going to preserve its purchasing power more than than something that gets printed easily. Well, if it was possible for you to lose that, then you can't benefit from that finite supply. Um, and that multi-sig is an application, which is native to Bitcoin, but then what what we help do, people do is make that easier to use uh, and then also have the benefit of a financial partner holding one of three keys. So You get that benefit of no man, woman, judge, jury can come between me and my money if I don't want them to, uh, but also having the benefit of a partner there to help in those instances where we're not dealing with a scenario where you're being censored or um, being prevented from accessing something, that that idea, that that 0.1 Bitcoin is actually being secured by multiple keys that exist in the physical world that aren't in the same location uh, and that have redundancies, is a very, very core aspect uh, to the security element that that actually makes Bitcoin a superior form of money. That it's actually easier to secure at lower cost and in a way that that doesn't have a single point of failure.
0: So I had a word in my notes for discussion with you, asymmetric, because you love that word. You use it all the time. We both use it in regard to Bitcoin in uh, a couple of different ways, honestly. I saved it till after this, though, because over the years in doing this, you develop influence. You start to be very careful with your words. And when you start talking about putting your retirement account into Bitcoin, when Bitcoin's at $69,000 and you realize somebody might have 500 grand sitting in, in, in an IRA, and might roll the whole thing because one dude on a podcast says, you get pretty cautious with this. And I, you know, I say over and over, like, you know, come into it average across time. But I think right now sitting with the network larger than it's ever been, having been attacked every six way from Sundays uh, and, and sitting at, you know, $18,000, $19,000, I was like, I keep, I'll get on Twitter and Bitcoin crashed. And I get all excited to go buy it. It's like nineteen I'm like, this is the class of 2021. They don't know anything about crash yet, really. Um, but from here, this seems like a very asymmetrical trade. How asymmetrical do you think it is now compared to when it was 300 bucks?
1: The way I would describe it is, first, there's a saying in Bitcoin, which is verify, don't trust. So I I always anchor to that point, which is that if you want to be able to weather all storms, if you want to be able to potentially convert your Bitcoin, your, your, your retirement, you know, funds into Bitcoin at 69,000 and not lose an ounce of sleep, uh, when Bitcoin quote crashes to 20,000, that, that is possible, but only if you've done your own work. Um, and I think people starting to understand and listening to this podcast will hopefully be additive to each person who listen to its knowledge base. But, understanding Bitcoin, understanding the fixed supply, understanding why people will have to adopt it into the future, why they would adopt it, why that thing is of value. It's like, I always anchor that fundamental uh, because, because retirement money is, is, is very, very important. Um, now I can, I can just explain from my own kind of thought process. I'll talk about asymmetry in general. I'll talk about what I've done myself and then I'll talk about like where we are today, which I think is the hardest thing to predict. I know what will happen in the long term. Um, yeah. But I view Bitcoin as the greatest asymmetry that's ever existed. And that doesn't matter if Bitcoin's a 69K or 20K. Um, I describe it as the greatest asymmetry that's ever existed. And when I talk about asymmetry, typically asymmetry might be a word that venture capital uh, investors might use where they make 10 investments. They might expect nine out of ten to fail, but the one investment uh that succeeds is uh increases in, in purchasing power by a thousand x and and that, that one thing had one hundred percent downside, but it had the opportunity to have a thousand X upside if not more. That that is what I'm talking about in terms of uh, of asymmetry. Now now if I think about asymmetry in the context of Bitcoin and why I would describe it as the greatest asymmetry that's ever existed, is that the world is adopting a new form of money. I would probably estimate that a maximum of 10 million people have any material exposure to Bitcoin. And I would desc- I would describe materiality as materiality to you. Uh, somewhere between five to 10%. Like how many people in the world have five to 10% of their savings in Bitcoin? It's not more than 10 million people. I may, you know, that's based on my my own research, my own estimates, and again, uh, verify, don't trust. But mm-hmm. that seven and a half billion people are going to adopt Bitcoin in my view because it is a fixed supply currency because everybody in the world would benefit from a form of money that can't be printed because it will get more and more secure and more and more decentralized and greater and greater utility from here as more people adopt it. Uh, that is what asymmetry is. If you just understand that it is very binary and it's like, and I don't believe this to be true, but if you, un- if you understood, well, it could be hundred percent down, could lose everything, or it could be, uh, we're going to go from a world where 10 million people have Bitcoin to seven seven and a half billion. And, uh, Warren Buffett has zero Bitcoin and Google has zero Bitcoin and Apple has zero Bitcoin and, and everybody needs money and, and like every company in the world and every billionaire in the world is going to need Bitcoin. Um, that, that is it. That is inherently asymmetric. Now, in my view of thinking about as the greatest asymmetry in the world, it is not just that because most asymmetric opportunities or events uh, are low probability. I also view Bitcoin as, as, uh not just probable but increasingly inevitable because of, of of where it's at, where where it stood the test of time and um the attacks it's it it survived and strengthened through those. That that most asymmetric events are low probability. Bitcoin is the has the greatest positive asymmetry that's ever existed because it, it what it represents is the world adopting a new form of money and money exists at the foundation of the economic layer. Everything Everything drives off of uh, of money working um, in our modern world, uh, but but when you add into that it being probable and then increasingly inevitable, um, that that adds to the the asymmetry of it. But there's a third component, which is if you're holding a form of money that fails, you have inherent negative asymmetry of that, and everything that is levered to that economic system, that is levered to that that base form of money, that it's like I like to describe it as um, the game of hide and seek where the kid is in the corner and he covers his eyes um, everyone can see the kid, but the kid doesn't know it that that this equation is you don't have to adopt Bitcoin, but money is a consensus just as gold emerges money that you can't just look away because if you decide not to to play and everybody else decides to you're going to get dragged along and if you hold a form of money, imagine if you were holding the Venezuelan boulevard when it went to zero. That is what negative asymmetry is. Sure. So it's positive asymmetry with the probability versus low probability versus the risk that you're wrong and you don't play and you hold the form of money. that doesn't just get debased, but that is no longer accepted, that it's inherently ne- ne- negatively asymmetric. That is how I frame Bitcoin in whole being the greatest asymmetry that's ever existed. And that's why, to me, it doesn't matter the Bitcoin 69K or 20K. Now, when I come to the question of retirement, and I did this myself back in 2020, um, I moved out of uh, the, the last semblance of what I had in the legacy financial system was in treasuries, um, and I converted it to Bitcoin. I did that at a point in time. People can do it in points in time. I think that the, the framework that I have for it was this money that's in my IRA I'm going to be saving for it for the long term for 30 years, 35 years plus. Um, it is Bitcoin is a long game. Um, and it is attractive for that reason. Um, it was attractive to me at least and that, um, it's like for savings in that way, but you have to be able to have a long view of Bitcoin. And, mm-hmm. and if you, if you have that long view of Bitcoin, then, then using long term savings matches up very well for it. But in my own case, And and I do think this is the proper framework. It's like over the 30-year period, if you think about negative asymmetry, I don't try to predict when the dollar is going to go away. But I know as a moral certainty that they're going to print trillions more and that everything levered to that system is going to be disrupted. I also have a framework as to why people are going to adopt Bitcoin. That in that world, I viewed it as the second I got my money out of the legacy financial system, there was this there was this massive calming that I was like, this decision is going to ensure that any other decision that I make from here is going to be secured. But I also came at that perspective from a very grounded understanding in Bitcoin. Um, and I think that people have to match, you know, especially when they're using retirement savings, it does match well because of the long term nature of the savings and will smooth out this volatility but you also have to be anchored in some reality or objectivity around why you're doing what you're doing um but we do help people do that on chain we do have an ira and we do have it in that world where like it's not just in bitcoin right it's bitcoin but when you hold your own keys so That's when i think about it being actually outside the us financial system it is because i'm actually holding our my own keys and that is what we enable for people. It's it's Bitcoin. It's Bitcoin denominated, but it's not, you know, dollar denominated exposure to Bitcoin. It's actually the physical Bitcoin. It's like gold in your safe, um, but Bitcoin controlled by multiple keys. You control the majority of the keys. You control the controlling quorum in order to spend it, and you're securing it for the long term. Um, and so... Um, When people work with us, they just work with us as a firm. I think it is a highly consequential decision that people have to take seriously. But I also think in my, in my view, it is like the optimal way I could possibly save for my retirement. But each individual has to make that decision on their own.
0: I I agree. And I, I tend to also add with asymmetric thing. And you said Bitcoin's not a weapon, but I think it can be, you know, it can be compared to one because money is power and power can be a weapon. And, to me, it is the first ever, and I guess this is an analogy because it, it's not necessarily a weapon, but the first ever asymmetrical weapon of war. The, the concept of asymmetrical warfare is is ancient. Uh, it goes back to the art of war be, before that. That's kind of the first place that it was really canonized. Um, but an asymmetrical weapon is a totally different animal. And, and what I mean by that is, Let's say we had the most peaceful little settlement on the planet, but no one owned a gun. And we went from our zero to one wasn't to a matchlock, It was to fully automatic AKs. And so you and me and a thousand other people had AK-47s in our little camera. We were just very benevolent. We're not going to go out and hurt anybody. But all of a sudden, when we're attacked, you pop one or two people, they figure it out and go, no, don't bother these people anymore. What would ruin that for us is that technology getting into the hands of, let's call them our enemies or our adversaries. Because now we would have, we would go back to a symmetrical form of war. We both have the same weapon. To me, for the first time in history with Bitcoin, we have a thing. If an adversary adopts it, you benefit. It doesn't matter who, every single person, entity, whoever. People are like, well, what if the Federal Reserve starts putting on the balance sheet? Please. That'll just get to the world you and I want faster. Like there's, right. what if they hoard, you know, half the supply? Fine. Make a Satoshi work at worth a dollar. See if I cry. Right? Like, like there is no downside in any entity, any group, any people adopting it if you're already in the game. Now, if you're not in the game, Maybe that's not as true, but if you're in the game, then every single person, every single person that makes one tweak and makes the Lightning Network a little better, better for everybody. And I've never seen anything in the, I've studied it, and I've tried to find a thing that worked like that, where everybody benefited when anybody adopted it. I've never seen anything else in society, and that's why I think we'll have this tipping point. I want to mention for you at the end here, for those who might be new to you, one of the things you're really known for is a series of articles – kind of under the framework of gradually then suddenly. And I have a link in the show notes for everybody to check out. I really think you should read it if you want a deeper understanding of Bitcoin. But I think this is kind of how we get there. And I think if you would have told somebody 10 years ago, we'd be where we are with Bitcoin, they would have said you were crazy. But when you show them where they are, they will say, well, if you were that good, you should be further. And I think that is kind of that gradually than suddenly thing. Like It will be one big moment where it happens almost overnight, but it really might be a couple decades of buildup to it.
1: Yeah. And that, that, um, that framework, I think that, you know, with my series it's kind of, I think the way that people come to learn, it, it was, uh, not parroted, but kind of off of the, um, the Hemingway saying of first slowly than all at once. And then he was yeah. describing the process of going bankrupt and then it was kind of, um, morphed into gradually than suddenly over time. But that, the way that people go bankrupt is gradually and suddenly it happened back in history. And then you find it out at a point in time. Um, the way that currencies hyperinflate, uh, degrades. And then like everyone figures it out confidence is broken. Can't ever come back from that. And it's very similar to how people understand Bitcoin, um, on an individual level that it's kind of like inching towards it. And then some idea connects and it's like, Whoa, like, I think I just saw it for a fleeting moment, like how this could be possible. Um, And then ultimately that will happen on a society-wide level. It's impossible to predict exactly when the consensus becomes so large and the critical mass is that everybody else hits the exit, the single door exit to the movie theater at the same time. Um, But but that, in my view, is an inevitability. Um, And I do think that the point that you raised about the fact that every single person that adopts Bitcoin actually makes Bitcoin more valuable. And in the way I think about it is not only is it somebody else to deliver goods and services, because when someone decides I'm going to start saving in Bitcoin, they are on the journey to saying, I will accept Bitcoin for my goods and services. First, someone has to understand why Bitcoin, Not you know, there's a lot of speculation in Bitcoin. There's a lot of people who have Bitcoin that don't understand it. All those things can be consistent at the same time or not mutually exclusive, but that On the path to selling your goods and services directly for Bitcoin, it could be the cattle rancher, it could be the oil and gas guy, um, it could be the auto manufacturer, then on that journey, you first have to understand why Bitcoin would store value into the future. Once you do and you start purchasing it, converting fiat for it, what you are actually becoming is a trading partner for the network. Some people decide to build on Bitcoin, Sometimes some people decide... To to write about Bitcoin, some people decide to t- deliver value, but everyone who's saving in Bitcoin is delivering value to the Bitcoin network, and what they represent is trading partners. So if, the, you know, the context of the Fed, I don't think the Fed produces much value, so it's going to be hard for them to accumulate a ton of Bitcoin, um, but if the Fed adopts Bitcoin, great. The BOJ is going to have to act, act next, the, you know, ECB or whatever it breaks up into when the Euro project actually fails um probably in a final way um but but so Mm. again the same but then the the same is true of apple and google you know like if you if you want iphone so eventually apple is going to say hey if you want my iphone that required all this work and maybe you don't maybe you want a dumb phone you know that has less technology in it whatever it is that eventually that person producing that good is going to say pay me in bitcoin uh that person that adopts it is on that journey and if uh, I think it was an article I wrote called Bitcoin Obsoletes All of the Money, that when you th- when you start to understand, I don't know which law it is, but um, each individual, imagine there's a million people in the in the Bitcoin network, and one person joins the Bitcoin network. The the amount of trading partners just increased by a million. Everybody in that network could has one new partner. Has one new partner. Um, and that and then and then when you think about that, each person is not just creating a one to one expansion of the utility. Uh, it's a one to many relationship. And that also kind of in that universe, um, that as Bitcoin becomes more valuable, as more people accept it, as more people adopt it, as the fixed supply gets spread out and more and more to more and more people, that what it represents is being able to take the same nominal unit of currency that represents more value that's transferred um, over the internet. And that, that kind of function of adoption actually, um, adds to its, adds to its utility too. So, um, it is, it is like money is very unique in that regard. Um, but, but it's also very logical as to why that incremental adoption, um, you know, increases and also increasing at a, at a, at a rate of multiples, if not orders of magnitude. Um, and, and also uh, when you think about it, Imagine because you also made this point. Imagine the first hundred thousand people to adopt Bitcoin. They had to be a, a certain type of, um, you know, genius slash crazy slash weird pioneer, right? Pioneer had to be willing right. to get shot in the back, like you, yeah. yeah. And now a lot of those people probably don't still have Bitcoin. They might have sold it when it yeah. went to um, a yeah. dollar or ten dollars. But then imagine the next hundred thousand. More more to the point, those, those hundred thousand, those people were still probably weird. Um, or genius or pioneers then then think about the first million like starting to like you 've got to start to get outside of like the truly you know pioneering crowd like when you get to a million people, well now next imagine the next million, the next million are less than that first million that like it 's easier for the next million to adopt Bitcoin once the first million have already gone before them. The consensus is starting to form now the next ten million. Well, the next 10 million are easier than the first 10 million because the consensus is more obvious. There's more infrastructure. There's more trading partners. So it's not just that the network itself is a greater utility as there's more infrastructure, that with each new trading partner, Bitcoin actually becomes a a greater utility. It's that with each next wave, the consensus is, is more and more clear. It's actually mentally easier to arrive at Bitcoin uh, and easier to understand it as money as the network grows um, because that next ten million the next hundred million the next hundred million after that they're they're actively um, in a much functionally easier place to arrive at Bitcoin as a consensus of money because of all those people that went before them uh and that's and you know partly is because there's more you know authorship. My series called Gradually and Suddenly, the Bitcoin Standard, Inventing Bitcoin, Mastering Bitcoin. Um, all that knowledge base is growing, but it's also I'm looking at my peers. Hey, ten people that I kind of respect and that I don't view as, you know, um, you know, living on the corner of an internet. They're they're saying that there's something here in Bitcoin. It might be Jack Dorsey. It might be um, it might be Paul Tudor Jones. It might be somebody that exists in whatever, whatever corner of the globe you, you pay attention to a signal. As soon as a few of those people arrive at this consensus, you might be like, okay, this feels like magic internet money to me, but two people that I really respect are saying very rational things and I, and I know them to be rational and I view them to be high signal. That's why it's easier for you to then adopt. And then that just, you know, existing on a spectrum becomes easier and easier because then there's two people in your circle, then there's three people, then there's four people. And you're like, man, I'm starting to be the one out of consensus. I need to take a look at this.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I kind of look at like, if you look at the cycles we we had, we went from geeks arguing about Bitcoin to nerds arguing about Bitcoin to like podcasters and influencers arguing about Bitcoin to millionaires arguing about Bitcoin to billionaires arguing about Bitcoin. To heads of state arguing about Bitcoin. That's kind of like how I see the having cycles now up to this point. And like, well, what's the inevitability of what comes next? And that leads into, I, you've been here a long time. I so appreciate you giving me this stuff. I didn't expect it. So thank you. Uh, but kind of with that thought and, and one question from the audience, if, if you could give us the time for that, uh, k says, what do you think the three tipping points are for Bitcoin as a world reserve currency? Like what, what puts us over the finish line?
1: So I I was going to say one last thing on that point that, you know, cause as you were describing that process of like, you know, kind of the scale of people who argue about Bitcoin and it's getting mind shared by more and more people. It's also why Bitcoin is so asymmetric, which is like two billionaires thinking about like Jack Dorsey and Warren Buffett. Like one person can see it. One person can't see it at all, but each individual has the opportunity to beat Warren Buffett to the greatest asymmetry, Right. Um, And that Bitcoin is not an IQ test. It is a common sense test. It is, does money Mm -hmm. grow on trees or does it not? Is there such thing as a free lunch or is there not? A versus B, what are the differences between these these two things, the dollar and Bitcoin or or gold and Bitcoin? In terms of tipping points, um, I think that it is very difficult to... um, it's very difficult to predict timing. I, I prefer to, to anchor in first principles and things that that uh, that I can beat to a drum in terms of questioning first principles, and then having those anchor points to to then come back to to question the world as it evolves and is particularly volatile. To say. Are these things that, that inform my past decisions still true? Uh and are they objective? And am I am I rationalizing my logic? Am I putting kind of flags in the ground and then and then moving them? Or am I being consistent? Um I think that it's I think that but ultimately um these two systems are dynamic. I won't completely hedge, so I'll give some kind of like tangible, but I want to qualify it before I do. Uh these two systems are dynamic. If I'm choosing to store my energy and time and value in Bitcoin, I'm, I'm decidingly decide, I'm decidingly making that point not to store it in, in dollars. Uh, when I'm, when I'm building Bitcoin, when I'm building unchained and when I'm helping people hold their own keys, I am actively and everybody here at our company is actively contributing energy into infrastructure for Bitcoin. We are not doing that for the dollar system. Uh, and, and, and because when I decide to store my value in currency A, not in currency B, energy is moving over to, to network A and it's actually leaving network B. So, um, and, and, and I think that's a perfectly good thing. Sometimes some people would say, uh, you know, Bitcoin's attacking the dollar. It's like, no, Bitcoin is providing us all a lifeboat uh, and people are going to benefit from it depending on when, when they adopt it and how much they defer consumption. But that kind of in that world, if that is true, you know, think about a developer at Google or Microsoft leaving Google and Microsoft to work on Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, it's taking energy out of those companies and conveying it onto the Bitcoin network, and it's conveying it in the form of new infrastructure that makes it easier to secure Bitcoin or transact in Bitcoin. That those, those my point is those two systems are dynamic. So when I think about this, it is how long can the legacy system survive? Uh, that is i think that it needs to be evaluated both independently as well as relative to bitcoin because every time that the fed has to return on the printing press and print trillions of dollars that causes people to learn about bitcoin everything the bitcoiners were saying is turns out to be true and look how much easier it is now to to secure bitcoin buy bitcoin transact in bitcoin i'm going to take my Dollars and sell more dollars for a smaller unit of Bitcoin because it's going to store value from that point in time more probabilistically or, or more functionally better than the dollar. So because of that, I get to this point that as more people exit the legacy system, that legacy system weakens, but it also weakens because they're actively printing money, which is the whole value proposition that Bitcoin is is solving. Um, I think that it's very difficult to believe that the dollar could could you know, again, it's going to sound crazy to certain people, but I'll explain my my thought process that the dollar exists in its current form in 10 years. Now, somebody might come up with a harebrained idea of, um, you know, having a Bitcoin back dollar, um, but but that wouldn't be the current the, form. the current the current form. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the reason why I get there is, I think, again, it is difficult to to measure because the Bitcoin network is a closed loop system. There are no identities. There are no, um, the Bitcoin network only knows what a Bitcoin is and isn't, and that there will only ever be 21 million, uh, and how Bitcoin are issued and how currency is validated. But if I was to estimate the, the number of people that have Bitcoin today, it's, a, you know, again, without finality and do your own research, verify, don't trust. Sure. It would difficult to imagine that that it's more than 10 million people but that it's Agreed. somewhere around there and that, that holistically uh, in, in, in adoption cycles. And we can see this based on you know, ultimately value that Bitcoin typically rises by an order of magnitude in those adoption waves, which I think translates most back to uh, adoption increasing by 10 X. And then, then I think forward to say if we go through two more adoption waves between now and the next 10 years, during a period of time that I know, just as I knew in 2016 that the Fed was going to have to print more money when they started to unwind post-financial crisis QE, they're going to have to do that again, and more people are going to figure out Bitcoin because knowledge distributes as a function of time. Over two adoption waves, if 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 Bitcoin, that would mean the Bitcoin got to a billion people in the next 10 years. Um, the and, and knowing that it's it is definitionally easier for more people to adopt Bitcoin going forward than the first 10 million. Um, not just because the infrastructure, because the knowledge exists, but because those 10 million went before them, that if we get to a billion people and if that 100x increase translated just to an 100x increase in the value of Bitcoin, then um, because you're distributing the same unit of currency over 100x more people and realistically those are going to be the wealthiest people in the world, the Apples of the world, the Googles of the world, the nation states of the world, the uh, Warren Buffetts of the world, that, um, if you 100x the value of Bitcoin, then Bitcoin as a monetary system would be bigger than the dollar is today. And that, that, that they would be printing more money, but that functionally, once Bitcoin becomes larger than the dollar system or the euro system, uh, or the yen system, it, um, and the dollar system is the largest, that, that, uh, when in a, in a steady state, not that it trades there at a point in time, but that it, that, can, that it could retain that value, that's when the dollar is volatile and Bitcoin becomes the stable unit of account. So I put the time frame around 10 years, but again, I I say I I live to survive all weathers. Uh, yeah. People cannot get overexposed to something that they don't understand. My my knowledge of Bitcoin and my planning for the future. I always plan to have enough dollars around so that I never need to sell my Bitcoin, um, but that I can survive all volatility. Um But part of that. That tolerance of volatility is um, a deep knowledge and understanding of Bitcoin at a technical level as well as a monetary economic level. Now, not everyone needs to have my technical level of understanding, um, but they also might not have the same exposure that I do as a result of that. Um, And they don't need to have the technical understanding of Bitcoin, just like they don't need to have the technical understanding of the phone. This will be true. So I do think it is a verify, don't trust. You need to know enough to ask the questions of yourself to form your own framework. But people are not going to have to understand Bitcoin like the first 10 million did. Bitcoin just works. And it's going to work like when you pick up the telephone and talk to someone halfway around the world and you don't understand how that happened. Uh, People will be observing in the marketplace currency A, losing value relative to all other currencies and and uh, and goods and services and currency B, Bitcoin. Uh, holding its value, increasing and purchasing power. Uh, and that that knowledge distribution only accelerates. And that's why kind of thinking about how Bitcoin has been adopted historically in waves and then kind of look, looking forward to the next 10 years and saying, will a billion people have Bitcoin in the next 10 years? I think that that is probabilistic. Um, and if that is true, then the dynamic of the dollar continuing to exist, if each one of those people is opting out of the legacy system, causes um, a new system to emerge as the primary uh, method of commerce.
0: So I agree with you on not knowing time. I like the 10 year number. And the reason I like the 10 year number by halfway through having. So right. 10 years is the completion of this having cycle, the full four years and the completion of two more. Right. That's that. And if you look at historically that, that translates out on track with what you're saying, but I can't do timelines and I never try to when, 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 K. though asked you for three tipping points. If I have to come up with like not when, but what to see, I, I said earlier. I think one would be the 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 ability of Bitcoin to exist in a form where it goes into pension accounts. I think the second that happens, it's a massive wall of money. Uh, it's also a major lockup of the available supply. It's a huge supply shock, right? Uh, I think the next thing from there, and you've, you hit it a bunch of times through your statement, one major company adopts Bitcoin in a significant way. And people would say, well, microstrategy. Microstrategy is not what, and Michael Saylor would agree, I think, is not what I mean when I say major corporation. An Apple a Google, somebody like that uh, starts to put it on the balance sheet, starts to integrate it into their product set, et cetera. And then your last tipping point is any major nation. And El Salvador or Central African Republic's not a major nation. A, you know, I think the state of Florida has got a, a three times the population and a 100 times the money of an El Salvador. Florida adopting Bitcoin would do more for Bitcoin uh than El Salvador would. So some nation of, you know, significant size. So a nation's a nation state the size of a Texas, a California, a Florida, a New York adopts Bitcoin. And then. What happens is in each of those, the other parties must engage. So pension funds start to really, and I mean actual pension funds, not some weird thing you can do with Fidelity or the awesome products that you guys are opening up, but where it goes mainstream, then pension funds have to start competing with each other. One major corporation does it, the other corporations have to compete with each other. One major nation state does it, the other other banks, the other nations have to compete with it. And those three things, and I could be totally wrong, like you said, you know, verify, don't trust. But if I have to pick concrete things, those are the things I can see that possibly make this happen.
1: Yeah, and I would say to kind of yeah get to that point, One, I think that it probably happens when five to ten percent of the world, uh, yep. or at least kind of wallet share uh, or wealth, forms that consensus because um, it's not just the the, num- the individual person. Even though that's a key part of it, it's like, hey, are they Apple or are they? you know somebody with you know a thousand dollars taking those two things are not created equal yeah um when it comes to to storing wealth in the bitcoin network um i would say that it you know it's interesting i would say a few different things um you know i, I do think a like g7 country yeah. adopting it uh i also think that a g7 current country that is not china banning it like a western uh a Western country coming out and being like, Oh no, this Bitcoin thing, we can't allow it. Cause that's the fait complete. Like everyone says like, what well, couldn't Bitcoin be, just be banned? And when you start to understand, well, Hey, gold was banned, but gold didn't cease to, to be a value to the world. Bitcoin's harder to stop. Um, and if, if the, it's harder the country, to stop. If, if a cut, if a, if a, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and it's a great and, and it's a greater utility. Yeah. Um, and so but if a country came out and, and said, Oh shit, this thing like we're we're losing control, that 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 to me is the feta complete. It's the omittance of like it's done. Um so on either side of those two things I think it exists. And then the Even, other and thing you can't
0: I, you can't win, right? right and, yeah, done. And,
1: and and you can't say this thing Bitcoin is not money at the same time you say like we have to ban it because it's threatening our global hegemony. Yeah. You know? Uh, or at least you know, within our four walls, hegemony and, and yeah. monopoly like it can't be those it can't be those two things, and that's the signal that's sent if they were wherever to ban it safe has a great quote that is if your country ever wants to ban something, you should probably want to own that yeah. um, but um but then the other thing would be, and i don't it's not that I disagree with yours, but the tipping point is like when it becomes clear and obvious that the energy industry has figured out that Bitcoin can solve a problem. For the, either the capturing, the capturing of stranded energy or the, the stabilization of, of grids and how grids are conceived and, and, you know, kind of matching supply and demand, uh, which is an inherently complex and persistent problem. Uh, when the energy industry pivots full into Bitcoin, that too mm-hmm. will be the tipping point.
0: Yeah. I want to revise my list <laughs> now. I want to put that one on my list. I don't know which one I want to take off. But I think you're right because that affects every little – every seriously, everything everywhere in the world because everybody uses energy. I think that's a better one than – I'm not sure which one, but one of them has to come off the list. Dude, thank you. This has been great. I want people to know I have links to your Twitter, Unchained Capitals, Twitter, Unchained Capitals website, your series of articles, which I think everybody should read. I believe Guy Swan put most of them in audio. So if you want to consume an audio, I think you can find them on Bitcoin Audible as well uh thank you so much you gave me two hours man i i i sincerely appreciate it you sound a little stuffed up maybe you're working through a cold or the COVID or something so thanks for hanging in there for us
1: man it was great just a little austin texas allergies yeah uh, these two yeah, the weeks mountain first, yeah first couple of weeks of october it gets me every year uh but yeah no appreciate you having me on i know we missed the, the first time but I uh, was really excited to come back on and yeah, people can find us at unchained.com. If they're interested in learning about what it is we do, if they go to that URL unchained.com, they can schedule a consultation. We'll talk with a member of our team. If they're interested in, in the IRA and understanding the, the the benefits, they can talk to one of the members of our team live. So I uh, recommend that people do that. And then, yeah, I'm on Twitter. It's in the show notes, My series gradually Then suddenly um, love sharing the knowledge base about Bitcoin. So appreciate you having me on Jack. Um, and anytime you want me, uh, I'll be here.
0: I appreciate it. Down there in the l- link of the video for those watching live, when the audio goes up, that link will go to the audio result. If you click on it this minute, it won't go anywhere because we're not quite done yet. It should go up about an hour from right now if you're watching live. Uh Parker, again, thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Shaq. I am so glad that we have added Parker to the Great Minds of Bitcoin series. If you're new to the Bitcoin breakout uh, as a part of the Survival Podcast or as a standalone thing, either way, it may be interesting to you know that we do have some amazing interviews with some incredible minds of Bitcoin, the likes of, oh, I don't know. How about Guy Swan? How about Brian Harrington? How about Parker Lewis now? Of course, recently, Gary Leland will continue to build out this series. If you want to find it, it's at thebitcoinbreakout.com. Just scroll down and look under tags, and you'll see the fundamentals. Uh, I'm sorry, the Great Minds of Bitcoin series. And there's a link in today's show notes for you as well. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys: if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always support me by just doing your online shopping at a little bitty website. Just to redirect one of the pages of my sites. TSPAS.com, that's T-S-P-A-Z, spaz.com Today's item of the day, though, is a deal of the day. It's not a full write-up and review. It's just something that came across my uh, my price monitoring. It's a generator that I recommend. It's kind of a secondary backup generator or a small lightweight generator. I wouldn't recommend you bet your life on it, you know, using it every day of the week or anything, but for the uh, occasional backup power use and along with camping and things like that, it's a fantastic generator. It's the Wen 2,000 uh, watt inverter generator. This thing is quiet, guys. It's literally at 20 feet uh, running quarter load, which would be you know a light load. But running a quarter loaded is quieter than an average communication, uh, an average conversation, an average you know conversation. But probably the, the level you're listening to me speak to you now is about 60 dBA. This thing, when it's running a quarter load, is at 51 dBA at 20 feet. And trust me, I I, I don't own this generator. I own other generators. This is one of the generators I've put together in groups that I will recommend when they go on sale. I've used this generator of Stanex even at like a half, three-quarter load. It is still really quiet compared to many other generators. It is normally sold for $429 retail. Everybody sells it retail all the time. It's marked down on Amazon right now to $350. That's almost $80 off. Free shipping, <clears throat> it'll be to your house this week, and you'll have it for winter, and winter is coming. If you read the write-up on it, again, you can find it at the SurvivalPodcast.com or tspaz.com and just look for the latest reviews. Um, you'll see down, there's a couple important things in, in the, the PS part. I don't have a lot of PSs in my reviews. In this case, I do. Number one, this is the WEN 56203i. There's also a 56200i. This is the slightly newer version. They're performance-wise the same. The 50, uh, the 56-200i sells for a dollar less right now. They're both on sale. It's on sale for uh, 349, and it ain't worth saving the buck over. The biggest difference between the two is the newer one has a fuel shutoff valve. Now, if you're new to generators. This is a great thing to have. In other words, when you're not using it, you have the fuel cut off to the rest of the system, and that's that's an important feature that was added when they upgraded this one. So if you're if you shop around or whatever and get confused, do not buy the 200i. There ain't nothing wrong with it. But for a buck, you might as well get the latest and greatest version thereof. Next, this generator uses a parallel kit. If you want to buy two of them and effectively turn two of them into a 4,000 watt generator. Now, why would you want to do that? Why not just go buy a bigger generator? Two is one, one is none. If you have a problem with one, the other one still works. You still have something. Two is one, one is none, and the two can go in two different locations or come back together if you need to run more power together combined. The thing is, it can be confusing with the when product line because they run their parallel kits basically up to a certain wattage. And the one for this, it's recommended for this, is a 3,600 watt. Okay, so it's generators up to that. It is, And I do have a link to that as well. It's about 50 bucks. You can add it if you want to get two of them. And so this is a great deal overall. It's not a smoking deal. It's a good deal. I mean, the, the Briggs & Stratton deal that I had for you guys a, a few months ago, that was stupid. That was stupid good. This is just good. But if you don't have any generator at all, even though I said I wouldn't make it my prime generator, I'd rather have this as a prime generator no generator. And if you have one generator, I would definitely recommend having something small and portable as a second backup. Again, two is one, one is none. This is about as good a deal as you see on a regular basis coming through. And so if you've been looking for one and it's super lightweight, great camping generator, great for tailgating, all that other stuff. And this is my philosophy with preparedness. I want you to have an item that you can use, not just in an emergency, and that way you're familiar with it so when an emergency comes you know what you're doing. This is a perfect little generator for that type of use. Again, made by Wen. Tons of great interview, uh, great reviews about it, both on Amazon and on YouTube. Tons of people talking about how quiet it is, easy it is to use. Check it out. Remember, you'll always find my recommendations at tspaz, that's tspaz.com. You can get there from the survival podcast.com as well. Just look for tspaz in the menu and you can find everything I've ever reviewed alphabetically categorized by different, uh, by the different, uh, uh, categories, right? So like you can find stuff on energy like this or what I recommend for kitchen tools and stuff. This is a good one. Uh, I, I went a little long on it, but it's cause this is a good one. With that, let's go ahead and wrap it up tomorrow. Especially for those of you tuning into the Bitcoin Breakout as a solo. You know, I find that people that like Bitcoin tend to eventually like things like permaculture and eating right and working out and getting their body in shape once they get their mind in shape. And a lot of people start looking to things like regenerative agriculture and permaculture. I have Mark Baker coming on tomorrow. He is uh, the the force behind Baker's Green Acres. I help support uh, Mark. Many many years ago when his farm was literally attacked by the government because of the kind of the breed of pigs that he was raising were considered dangerous because they were brown instead of pink. I am not kidding. He'll be here to tell you about that tomorrow. He'll also be here to tell you about homesteading as the answer to America's food crisis. And this guy is a good dude doing good work. You're going to want to hear from him. I was really excited when I heard that he wanted to be on the show, because it was, God, it was like six or seven years ago that he had that legal fight, and we threw the force of the TSP community behind him. So, TSPers, tune in. Bitcoin Breakout, people. Start expanding your mind to the other solutions that are available. That's the entire reason I made Bitcoin Breakout a thing, instead of just making it um, part of the Survival Podcast. Well, I made its own thing, because I know... I know this movement has force. I've seen it time and time again. Dude finds Bitcoin, number go up, realizes number go up is less important than freedom go up. Then learns about the economic system. Then learns about the lies like we talked about with with Parker today. Then says, wait a minute, what else am I being lied about? Then looks at the the health of of society and says, why are we so unhealthy? Starts digging into that. And next thing you know, we have this common ground where we start realizing where the real solutions are. So, if that interests you, even though you're a Bitcoin purist, to in tomorrow. Everybody else will catch you then with Aspen Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around?